cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry, I see other guys who use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, February 5th, 2013. for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There's no shortage of crazy, bizarre things being said out there about God, and of all places, the visible church. Now, this should not be happening. <laughs> this is not good. In fact, uh, one of the things I'm going to be uh, making the um, point, at least the, this is what I have planned for my upcoming uh, lecture that I'll be giving in uh, in Norfolk. Uh, actually, I received an email from somebody telling me I need to pronounce it Norfolk or something like that. You know. Anyway, I'm not from the South. I have family members from the South. And when I was a kid, when I would visit my family members from the South, you know, I'd spend like you know a week or two in Georgia or Memphis, and uh, I'd come back with a Southern accent. But uh, <laughs> so you know, my, apparently my accent's pliable. It, it, if I'm in the presence for a long period of time of people with uh, a strong accent, then I end up picking up that accent for some particular reason, which is bizarre if you ask me. But, uh, you know, which makes me think that, you know, it'd be cool to spend some time in the UK because <laughs> I'd really love to have a British accent because that would just, uh, no, it wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to pull it off. Anyway, anyway, going back to my point, I've derailed myself here already at the beginning of the program. When I am lecturing in Norfolk, Virginia, okay, I am going to be lecturing there at uh, Trinity uh, Lutheran Church in Norfolk. The details, by the way, are still at the Fighting for the Faith website. 
and uh, they're still on the homepage. I should probably put them up higher. There's a way for me to kind of like flag that uh, that post and say this one I want to appear higher up in the uh, in the list, and it, it'll do that. But the name of my lecture is entitled "How Not to Be Deceived, Bamboozled, or Schnookered by Religious Hucksters, Snake Oil Conmen, or Your Own Idolatrous Notions." In fact, one of the uh, one, kind of one of the earlier lectures that I'm planning on, I've been working on it, um, is the uh, is the doctrine of the need for sound doctrine. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, if, you, if you're able to attend, uh, again, go to fightingforthefaith.com. About halfway down the page, it says March 2nd lecture in Norfolk, Virginia, and it's going to be at uh, Trinity Lutheran Church uh, at 6, uh, 6001 Granby Street in Norfolk. Um, it's going to be on Saturday, March 2nd. Doors open at 9. First lecture begins at 9.30. We'll, we'll break for lunch for an hour for lunch, and then we'll come back and then every, you know, about 1 o'clock, and then I'll continue lecturing, finish up about 3 in the afternoon. And uh, even though I am a monergist and I do not believe um, – I don't believe in Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, or Arminianism. We will be taking a free will offering, so it's free to attend. And some of you've been asking if I will be uh, if I will be recording these. The answer is yes, I will be recording these, and I will also be. But uh, before we release the audio for this, just so you know, I will also be giving this same series of lectures. At uh, Kongsvinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, uh, Oslo, Minnesota, which is on the just north of Grand Forks, uh, North Dakota, I will be delivering this same set of lectures on the week, the same weekend that the what is it, March twenty third, uh, the weekend of the twenty third, whatever that weekend is in March. I will. It's uh, the day before Palm Sunday. That's the day. The day before Palm Sunday, I will be delivering this same set of lectures at Kongsvinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota. But they're actually, yeah, but uh, the, the population there for the most part lives in uh, North Dakota and Grand Forks. So we were there. In fact, I was there last year, and uh, so we'll be returning this spring to uh, to uh, to give another set of lectures. So if you uh, if you like to attend either of these things, you know, mark the mark, mark your calendars. But the, the, what, let me now. I'm not, I've derailed myself several times now. Come back, bring it all in. Here's what the idea is: that uh, we need a doctrine uh, that talks about the importance of sound doctrine. And the reason why we need that is because there's a whole lot of folks just making stuff up, absolutely making stuff up. And uh, what's really interesting is some of the feedback I've been receiving regarding John Mark Comer. He's the uh, the lead vision casting pastor at uh, Solid Rock in uh, Portland, Oregon. This kid's digging in his heels. He's <laughs> he's absolutely digging in his heels, and uh, of all the people, which is really interesting, on Aaron Benziger's blog, of all the people coming to John Mark Comer's defense is uh, Jerry Brashears. Now, if you're thinking Jerry Brashears, should I know that name? That name sounds kind of familiar. Uh, who's Jerry Brashears? Well, the Doctor uh, Jerry Brashears, if you're familiar with him, and uh, I actually had to kind of be reminded of this. Because um, he doesn't look anything like I thought he would look like. But um, Dr. Uh, Jerry Bashirs, uh, he co-wrote uh, the book titled Doctrine, What Christians Should Believe with Mark Driscoll of Mars Hill. And, uh, and so uh, what's rather interesting is, is that what, uh, what Jerry Bashirs writes or co-wrote with Mark Driscoll regarding there only being one God – 
um, John Mark Comer flat out contradicts and talks about created deities and things like that. And it's a form of polytheism. But anyway, so, you know, the, apparently uh, the powers that be over at Solid Rock Church are aware of the criticism and they've they've decided to circle the wagons and defend what they're calling creational monotheism, which, by the way, if your monotheism needs a modifier, okay, um, like creational, it ain't monotheism. It's actually a form of polytheism, which, by the way, is kind of interesting because, uh, you know, polytheism is just the belief that there is more than one God. Whether you worship those other deities or not, it does, it, or you consider one to be the one that you need to acknowledge, if you believe in the existence of more than one God, you are, by definition, a polytheist. And since John Mark Comer believes, teaches, and confesses that Yahweh created other deities, other gods, he is, by definition, a polytheist. Anyway, so it's just weird. you got all these weird things being taught out there. Um, resurgence of uh, annihilationism under the new name of conditional... How do they put it? A, a, a con, a conditional immortality is the uh, is the phrase that they're using, and uh, that's that's a mm, nasty teaching. In fact, I'm thinking that um, at my uh, my lecture in Norfolk that uh, I will be using uh, conditional immortality as taught by uh, Doctor Peoples. Uh, at, you know, if you're not familiar with these terms, I'll, come to the lectures, you'll get it. But I'm thinking about using that as an example. Uh, in it is you know like a bad example. To put it into practice. How do we refute such an idea using sound biblical hermeneutics? So I think that's one of the things we're going to be doing um, in Norfolk. So just keep all that in mind. I'm kind of talking off the top of my head here, but with that, take a breath and let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to start off with um, Kat Kerr and Patricia King talking about where life comes from. Now, don't worry, you don't have to actually have the kids out of the room. We're not talking, we're not having that talk. We're not talking about that. Um, this is actually uh, Kat Kerr and Patricia King having a conversation where Kat Kerr claims that God himself has revealed to her um, that we all pre-existed. Okay, no joke. So this is this is one of those things where we better tack this onto the back of our Bible because this is direct revelation, supposedly coming directly from God through the prophetess Kat Kerr as she had a conversation with co-prophetess Patricia King where we get new revelation, stuff that is nowhere in the Bible that, you know, regarding apparently uh, how we all pre-existed inside of God. No joke. It, you will definitely need to take every precaution necessary to protect your brain from damage while listening to that particular segment of Fighting for the Faith. Then we'll t we'll take a break. I've got a um, I, I've got a Christian Post story. Where get this, Mark Driscoll um, in a uh, in an interview he did with the Gospel Coalition, he has come to the defense of Joel Osteen. No joke. I'll details when when I read the story. But yeah, so. Apparently, Mark Driscoll is theologically sliding and sliding quickly um, to the point where you know, he was the uh, – I considered Elephant Room 2 last year, something similar to a theological bank robbery. And uh, the guy driving the getaway car was none other than Mark Driscoll. And so now you've got Mark Driscoll not only you know, complicit in the crime of trying to mainstream modalist uh, T.D. Jakes – but now you have him publicly coming to the defense of Joel Osteen, who theologically is indefensible. And uh, just to kind of make the point, we'll spend a little bit of time 
uh, not the, this isn't a full-blown sermon review. We'll have a Joel Osteen update, and we'll listen to part of a recent sermon that aired on uh, on your local infomercials spots entitled Seeing Yourself as a Masterpiece. Seeing Yourself as a Masterpiece. And then after that, uh, hour number two, we're going to be going back to South Hills Church in Corona, California. Now, if you've been listening to Fighting for the Faith for any length of time, then you will, you will know that uh, South Hills in Corona has been a church that we have regularly reviewed sermons from, uh, from their head pastor, Chris Songson. Well, Chris Songson has stepped aside as the head teaching pastor, and they've it put in place a brand new dude. His name is uh, Chris Harrell, and we're going to be listening to his inaugural sermon as the chief uh, honcho of uh, preaching and teaching out there at South Hills. Now, just a little kind of history. South Hills was started by Chris Songson and his wife. He worked at Saddleback prior to starting South Hills, so there was a direct connection between him and Rick Warren. And he has been one of the most miserable exegetes that we've ever reviewed here at Fighting for the Faith. In fact, I think uh, more than once he's a, he's appeared as a contestant in our annual Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. And uh, although he hasn't won the honors as the you know with the, the person responsible for preaching the worst Easter sermon of the year, his stuff has come really close, dangerously close to winning all the beans. But then again, um, you know, he was up against Rob Bell and, and guys like Shane Hips. And so it's it's hard to win the worst Easter sermon of the year contest if you're competing against guys like that. So which, by the way, we will be having that contest again this year. This is an annual event here at Fighting for the Faith. And uh, just to let you know, okay, you can submit uh, sermons for consideration, but they have to be preached this year. So here's the idea, is that uh, one of the things, the reason why we do this is because you can tell whether or not somebody truly preaches Christ and Him crucified, whether they have a firm grasp on the gospel, pretty much two times a year, but more importantly, one time a year. And that's what do they do with Easter Sunday. Now, it, this has nothing to do with the debate on whether or not Christians should be celebrating Easter, which, by the way, I think is a, just a complete canard. Um, it's ridiculous. I mean, the fact that Jesus was crucified on the eve of the Passover is historically documented. It's really simple uh, to get all of that, and that he rose again on the third day after that Friday just pretty much nails it. So uh, Christians should be celebrating, uh, if you don't want to call it Easter, I don't care if you call it Easter. By the way, that, that's a myth that it, Easter means you know basically pagan things. Um, but the, the idea is is that uh, if you don't want to call it Easter, don't call it Easter. Call it the, uh, we're going to celebrate the Sunday of Christ's resurrection. You know, it, there's a, it's a great thing to do, by the way. But anyway, when, when pastors and teachers ascend to this, well, I don't want to say pulpit, but when they ascend the stage nowadays on Easter Sunday or the Resurrection Sunday, what comes out of their mouth is going to be an indicator as to whether or not they really, truly are Christ-centered and cross-focused, okay? And this, as far as I'm concerned, this is the this is the day when real theological sifting takes place. You are either preaching Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead and telling the world about what he has done, or you are allegorizing that text and making about anything other than Christ's resurrection from the dead. And so Easter is a great, easy time to spot bad theology. And so every year here at Fighting for the Faith, we have a contest. And you get to submit, if you want to, you know, you can submit people to be considered. So the, what we do is, is that the first week after Easter, 
we listen to only good sermons, okay? Because that's the week when all of the uh, the submissions come in, when people are emailing me and saying, oh, you need to review this sermon, or you need to review that sermon. And, you, and we review them. Hoy, <laughs> we review them. And then from that group of submitted, uh, you know, ones as well as ones that I uh, I get to throw in some suggestions myself too, uh, what happens is we pick the, the best of the worst and then the following week, it there is no uh, there is no light edition of fighting for the faith in the sense that there's no good thing. But every single day, it, it we're going to be reviewing at least one, sometimes more than one, uh, bad Easter sermon for your consideration. And then at the end of the week, uh, on the website, we put up a poll, and then you get to vote as to who's who's preached the worst Easter sermon. And, uh, and, you know, and it goes from there. Now, in the past, what we've done is, is the person who's won that uh, honor, you know, uh, the person who preached the worst Easter sermon of 2012 or whatever, uh, what I do is I send them a, you know, a, a card as well as a book. You know, the card, the basic says, congratulations, you've won, uh, you know, the, the worst Easter sermon of the year contest for your sermon entitled blah, 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 whatever. And then the book that I send them to go with it is uh, Michael Horton's book, Christless Christianity. So just so you know that the pastor who wins does actually get something. So anyway, with all of that said, we're going to dive into the program proper. I'm not going to play the warning. I'll just warn you. What you're about to hear is, well, crazy. Let's go. So, uh, have you ever wondered where life comes from? I mean, you ever asked yourself the question, like, what was I doing before I was born? You know, I always thought that I just didn't exist until God made me, but apparently that's not what God has revealed to Cat Kerr and Patricia King. Yeah, it's probably best if I just let the two of them share with you this particular new revelation that has apparently come directly from God. Here's Kat Kerr and Patricia King to discuss the details of where we all came from. On today's program, I'd like you to share a little bit about what you write about in your books, about where we come from, like where we are before we enter the earth, before our life comes into the earth. And in Jeremiah verse uh, uh, 5 of chapter 1, it says of God to, to, to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, before I formed you mm-hmm. in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Mm-hmm. And so it's very clear there that God is saying to, to, to Jeremiah, before he ever came into the earthly realm, mm-hmm. God knew him, and he had already appointed him right. before he was put in the womb. He had appointed. Now, this has to do with God being sovereign, the fact that he is omniscient, omnipresent, that God elected us in Christ before the foundation of the world, things like that. Um, but that's not where they're going to go with this, okay? Um, those of you familiar with Mormon doctrine are familiar with the idea that, well, Mormonism teaches that our God, Elohim, that's what they call him, Heavenly Father, Elohim, he apparently lives near a planet called Kolob or near a star called Kolob with his, uh, with his wives, Many, many, many wives, and they're very busy people, and they're so busy that they're constantly producing new spirit babies, and these are babies that, uh, that well, they don't have a physical body, 
And and so the idea is is that heaven, you know, Elohim made planet Earth and you know, Adam and Eve so that there would be bodies for all of the spirit children that he and his wives have been creating near that star called Kolob. You think I'm making that up? I'm not. Okay. So the idea here is is that Mormonism teaches that we pre-existed on near planet Kolob and that we are the offspring of Elohim and one of his many <clears throat> wives. And so, by the way, the goal of Mormonism is for you to become a god like Elohim so that you can procreate like Elohim does, you know, on your own planet, you know, yeah, it's crazy. Anyway, so, but what's going on here is something almost as crazy, and here's the thing. Even though they've referenced Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah the prophet is not teaching our pre-existence. They are about ready at this moment to add to Scripture via the so-called direct revelations that Cat Kerr has received from God. Listen in. ...to him to be a prophet. That's now, right. you have had insight into this. And God revealed it to you. Uh, share with us, share with the audience uh, what the Lord has said. It was an amazing experience because a lot of people want to know, where, what, where was I before I came here? You know, right. I had to be somewhere, you know, and some people think... No, I, I don't have to be somewhere before I came here because, well, I am not... I am not immortal in the sense that I haven't been, I haven't infinitely existed, you know, for infinity. Okay. Same with you, by the way, each and every one of us has a specific day, time, place where we came into existence. Okay. There was a time when there was no Chris Roseboro. Now, I know there's a lot of people out there who are looking forward to a time when there isn't any Chris Roseboro anymore. I, I get that. But um, but see, the thing is, is that there was a time where Chris Roseboro wasn't, and then Chris Roseboro was. Okay, he is. Okay, I, I are. <laughs> I'm messing up my verbs here. Anyway, you get the point. Okay, same with you. Okay, before you were created, before... Uh, you were a zygote, you were nothing. You didn't exist, except in the mind of God who knew that he was to create you. And you were created through the means of your parents by God himself. Okay, But you didn't pre-exist. And this little question that Kat Kerr is uh, telling us, uh, this is some dangerous stuff going on here. And like I said, we might as well go ahead and grab Kat Kerr's books and throw them onto the end of our Bibles, you know, right after the part in Revelation where it says if you add to or take away from, you know, curses and things like that. Well, let's just add Cat Curse stuff right after those that warning. Actually, they never existed before that time of conception, although, like you said, the word clearly says it does. In Psalms 139 is another scripture that says, I knew you before you began to breathe. I wrote every day of your life in right. a book. And it's absolutely true that he did give um, Jeremiah his gift and his calling before he came here. Well, we were all little spiritual beings, and I want to make right. uh, people understand you didn't have the body you have now. Right. You oh, really? We, I was a spiritual, a little spiritual being with the, with the, but I didn't have the body I have now. Where'd you get this again? 
you weren't you, you didn't look like you, but you did have a personality and God had already put your little gifts inside of you. Right. And we actually lived in God. Now, this was an amazing revelation to me because, you know, when we think of God, we don't know that much about him uh, through the word, except he's holy. He's filled with love that we are made in his image. That means if we're made in his image, that means he does have a, a head. He has arms, he has legs, you know, right. or we wouldn't have them. So he is a being, an right. eternal being, but inside God, God is not what's inside our body. He doesn't have organs. Uh, if you looked inside God, it would be eternity. There would be literally no end to the inside of him. So uh, we all actually lived in him as these little tiny spiritual beings. If you stand before the throne of God, even today, long enough, you will see them moving in and out of his being, the life, these little life of these Just little like beings. like a person would breathe. Like a person would breathe. Like- you actually can hear that life be going in and out of him. And I know several people people were caught up to heaven have also seen them some they're little different sizes and i tell people are they little green men do they fly around in ufos i'm curious doesn't sound necessarily flattering but you look sort of like a little gingerbread person you had the shape of a head the shape of little arms and legs and we had the nature of a child like a little child Mm -hmm. so before we came to earth we existed as little gingerbread people Mm mm-hmm we actually played inside God. We, we lived there in the book of Acts. There's a scripture. That- so God has a playground inside of him. Got it. Where all the little gingerbread people play. Mm-hmm. Because in him we live, we move, we have our being or our right. existence. The prophets and poets of old have spoken of these things. So that's not talking about this time. That's talking about in the ancient days before we were ever sent to earth, actually. We all lived in God. And that's why I saw these little beings moving in and out on the rays of glory that come right. from God. So the little gingerbread people who who play and roll around on the on the beams and rays of glory. Mm-hmm. And he was our only existence. And he wanted a family. He knew one day he would send us to earth. He made the earth so we could send us here and we would have a physical body. Mm-hmm. So at the time of conception, when that takes... I mean, who needs Mormonism when this is what's parading as, as evangelicalism? Place in the womb of the mother, he sends one of the little spirits, and it's in your spirit's made out of light, so it looks like a little light being. And he actually, the Holy Spirit takes it in the womb and attaches it. That's that scripture I knit you together in your mother's womb. Uh, He's talking about taking that little eternal spirit and attaching. So, when you're in your mommy's tummy, what happens is, is that God the Holy Spirit comes in and he brings the little gingerbread boy or girl, and then he knits it with the, the little zygote. Mm-hmm. That little tiny bit of flesh. And what's so interesting is that scient- scientists have proven that at that point of conception where the, the, the sperm impregnates the egg. That's right. At the moment that that takes place, they can actually see the light. That's right. They see it. Yes. And so at that point, that's where God releases that the spirit. spirit. Isn't that and exciting? And it is a life <laughs> from that point. That's right. So your little gingerbread person, that, uh-huh. It's a, it becomes a living human being at the very moment. And I love it that they see the light because that is, that's a little eternal spirit filled with light being attached by the Holy Spirit. Wow. And so he sent us to earth because he wanted a family. And he actually told me, he said, you lived inside of me. I sent you to earth so I could live in you. And we lived in the heart of God and he lives in the heart of our spirit. He said, I live in the same place in you. You did in me because he'd have to live in our spirit. He couldn't live in our body. So he doesn't live in our human heart. 
He lives here in our spirit. That's so awesome because eternity is within us, the longing for eternity. Yeah, make sure that you've, you've attached these revelations to the back of your Bible, you know, so that, you know, so answer all those questions that are not already there. Like even false religions are about the afterlife. Yes. Because in eight. And this is true religion. Really? This isn't biblical Christianity. This is nonsense. We know because we came from God. That's right. And every soul, even even people who who say that they're atheists, that's right, are not really. I mean, I remember when I was nursing a person on their deathbed. They were mm-hmm. a proclaimed atheist their whole life. On their deathbed, I was there. I heard it myself. Mm-hmm. I was eyewitness to this. They cried, "Oh God, help me! Oh God, help me!" Yes. When they were in pain, "Oh God, help me!" Because inside of them, they know. The existence of God, the reality of God, because they came from God. That's absolutely true. And you know, in the book of... So they were atheistic gingerbread people. Mm -hmm. There's a scripture that says, God said, I make myself known Mm -hmm. to every man. So that's put in there, in you, that there is a God. And we came from him. And also says in the word of God that he is our father and we are his offspring. That means we're his little kids. So we all lived in God. He is our daddy. And he sent us to earth so he could have a family. And uh, like he said, we lived in him. Then he lived in us when we're in the earth. And then one day we'll all live together. But we no longer live inside him. We'll be outside where he could hold us and do things with us. Yeah, so we won't give him indigestion and things like that. I I told you this was crazy. But folks, you got to understand, Patricia King gets invited to speak at churches all over the world. Okay? Her little XP Media website, there are a ton of people who hang on what this woman says and believes that it has something to do with Christianity and and the biblical God. But this is absolute, utter nonsense. The Bible teaches none of this. How do we know any of this is true? The answer is none of it's true because none of it's taught in Scripture. You can trust Scripture, but you can't trust Cat Kerr and Patricia King. When you test their fruit, and that would be their doctrine, you find that they don't teach the historic Orthodox Christian faith. They teach something different than that. So the one thing we can say with certainty is that whatever these so-called special revelations that Kat Kerr is receiving, they do not have their origin in God, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Holy Trinity, the one revealed in Scripture. But this is something completely different, and it's dangerous. As crazy as that sounds, there are people who are believing this, and they're believing it has something to do with Christianity, Jesus Christ, and the one true God. It doesn't have anything to do with him. This is a complete distraction. This is false doctrine and false teaching. The cults have doctrines and teachings like this. Christianity doesn't because God hasn't revealed any of this in his word. And you can trust the written word of God. Kat Kerr, Patricia King, you cannot trust them. When you test their teaching against against scripture, they fail every single time. 
All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. When we come back from this break, we're going to be looking at a Christian Post article that says that Mark Driscoll has come to the defense of none other than Joel Osteen. And while we're at it, we'll do a Joel Osteen update. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Have reached the voice mailbox for Melissa Fisher. Please leave a message after the tone. When finished, you may press one for more options. Hi, Melissa. It's the Holy Spirit. Um, I was wondering if you could help me out. I'm I'm trying to uh, get a hold of a guy named Vincent. That I can't remember his last name. This guy wants me to make myself real in his life, but I can't find his address or his phone number or email. The world is so complicated. You know how hard it is to find somebody if you can't remember their last name? Do you know how many Vincents there are in the world? He's, he said that he would leave his sin behind if I could just, you know, somehow reach out to him and prove that I'm real. So if you could make one of your really fancy videos and... Tell him that I'm calling him by name, but don't tell him that I can't remember his last name. I, I really would appreciate it. Oh, and uh, one more thing. You might want to mention something about his adventurous heart. That way he'll know that the message is for him. Thanks, Melissa. I, you know, I don't know what I'd do without you. Hey, everyone. This word is for Vincent. Vincent, the Lord calls you by your name, and he is making himself known to you today. Now that he has made himself known to you, remember what you said. You said, Lord, if you would call me, if you would make yourself real, that I would come and I would leave, absolutely leave all of it behind and come to you because you've been wavering between two opinions. Now here it is. Vincent, the Lord is calling you. Come to him. The life is better on this side. Believe me. Give up the unfruitful works of darkness and walk completely in the light. And I tell you, Vincent, you won't be sorry. The Lord is ready to show you a mighty, mighty adventure. That adventurous heart that you have, the Lord is going to really, really reach in and He's going to satisfy that heart in you, and it's going to be even more than you ever could have planned on your best day. So, Vincent, come to the Lord. Wait no longer. Vacillate between two opinions no longer.
You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend Radio. We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tykrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. Missouri. <laughs> the spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner, and the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Warning, beware of people who claim that they've made trips to heaven and have learned things that are not revealed in Scripture, like, oh, that we pre-existed as little gingerbread people inside of God on a fuzzy rainbow and things like that. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. Are you a member of our crew yet? Well, if not, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and right there in the center of the homepage, you will see a button. It's a friendly yellow button, friendly yellow, and it says, Join Our Crew. Click on it. Fill it out. It's only $6.95 every month to support Pirate Christian Radio. It's, it's not a lot of money. It's it's not a lot of money. And it's it's an important thing. The important thing, reason being, is because by supporting us financially, by bo- joining our crew, it makes it so that we can make budget every month. And making budget every month is a good thing so that we can keep bringing Fighting for the Faith to you and you can keep enjoying it. And then, you know, recommend it to your friends and you know, things like that. So join our crew. There's perks that go along with it. You'll, I, I tell you, they're, they're worth it in the long run. It's a great way to support us. Plus, you know, we, the idea is, is that this is a resource we want to continue to make available to people without having to put our archives behind a paywall and things like that. I think it's important for new listeners to be able to go back as far as they can, as they want to, so that they can 
find out what this program's about and learn how to apply good biblical discernment to the people that are teaching them scriptures today. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, do that by clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Moving along. From the Christian Post, the headline reads, Mark Driscoll on Joel Osteen. There are worse things than being happy and encouraging. Yeah, no joke. This is by Nicola, uh, Nicola Menzi of the Christian Post. She's a reporter there, and here's how the story reads. Seattle megachurch pastor Mark Driscoll recently came to the defense of fellow Christian minister Joel Osteen while admitting that his reformed brothers like to treat Pastor Joel like a piñata. In a recent interview with the Gospel Coalition, the Mars Hill church pastor was asked to comment on a segment of his new book, Who Do You Think You Are?, that mentions appreciated people who exchange grumbling for praying, competing for celebrating, bitterness for thankfulness, performing for serving, and boasting for encouraging. The interviewer, TGC's associate editor, Matt uh, Smithhurst, asked Driscoll, what's an appreciated person? Isn't that what Joel Osteen wants me to be? Um, Quote, I am aware of the theological differences that exist between our tribe and Pastor Joel, Driscoll responded. I also know my Reformed brothers like to treat Pastor Joel like a piñata, but there are worse things than being happy and encouraging at a time when the most common prescription medications are antidepressants. Driscoll made the same reference to the common use of antidepressants in his 2007 multi-part sermon series, uh, The Rebel's Guide to Joy, in which he mentions in part one Osteen's preaching of the gospel, uh, which has been labeled by some as a prosperity or health and wealth message. Osteen, who leads Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, and preaches to about 43,500 people, who visit the church every weekend, has embraced the prosperity label, although he is careful to define the term. Quote, The way I define it is that I believe God wants you to prosper in your health, in your family, in your relationships, in your business, and in your career. So I, so I do, if that's the prosperity gospel, then I do believe that, Jostein previously told the Christian Post, adding that he also believes God rewards obedience. In a video of part one, the Rebel's Guide to Joy, uh, focused on Acts 16 in Philippians uh, chapter 1, verses, uh, cha- uh, verse 1a, Driscoll referenced Osteen's preaching when he offers examples of how some people, uh, members of a society might turn to culture and religion or spirituality in their pursuit of happiness. Quote, who's the happiest Christian out there? His name is Joel Osteen, said Driscoll, showing an image of the August 2005 cover of Texas Monthly featuring a photo of Osteen with the caption, and on the eighth day God created Joel Osteen. Calling the Lakewood Church leader the most well-known pastor in America, Driscoll noted that America is absolutely in love with this guy. While acknowledging that Osteen as his Christian, uh, acknowledging Osteen as his Christian brother, Driscoll, however, expressed concern with Osteen's prosperity message, which is not unique to the Texas minister. Quote, "I'll tell you what does what doesn't bother me about the guy. It doesn't bother me that he's got a big church. It doesn't bother me that he's on the radio. It doesn't bother me that he's on TV. It doesn't bother me that he publishes books. It doesn't even bother bother me that he's happy all the time because maybe his spiritual gift is encouragement." said Driscoll in his 2007 sermon, according to the video and a transcript from Mars Hill. What I find disconcerting, this is from 2007, 
is this whole wave of new Christian thinking that says that joy is to be found in the same place that culture and spirituality tells us. Get rich, get healthy, be happy. That's the equation, health and wealth, prosperity. Now in this, what we are saying is that as Christians, we have nothing to offer that isn't any different from non-Christians or people in other religions, he adds. In a 2011 feature on Pastor Joel Osteen, USA Today, uh, religion, spirituality, and ethics reporter Kathy Lynn Grossman noted how the minister's message of empowerment and success makes his critics livid, specifically citing Southern Baptist Theological Seminary President Reverend R. Albert Moeller, Jr., and Pastor Driscoll. Grossman apparently also referenced Driscoll's 2007 sermon, writing that the Reformed Evangelical Christian minister says Osteen reduces the pursuit of God to lollipops and skipping while singing hymns. When asked for reaction to Moeller's and Driscoll's critiques, Osteen looked genuinely mystified, wrote the reporter. I don't know who those people are, Osteen told Grossman. <laughs> In his interview with the Gospel Coalition last week, Driscoll expressed the belief that Christian preachers should not focus too much on either joy or suffering, a topic he feels features prominently among Reformed and New Calvinist ministers. The Reformed Christian tradition, inspired by the teachings of the 16th century French uh, theologian John Calvin, among other focuses on, among other things, God's sovereignty and holiness, and sinful man's need for salvation, which is initiated by God and wholly dependent upon His grace. Quote, a few guys in our tribe can learn to talk about something other than painful, arduous suffering once in a while, if nothing else than for the sake of variety, Driscoll told the Gospel Coalition. Quote, our identity is not in our joy and our identity is not in our suffering. Our identity is in Christ, whether we have joy or our suffering. Okay, so here's the problem is that um, it's pretty clear that Driscoll's drifting. Okay, last year, last year, he he was the one driving the getaway car, uh, you know, for the crime of basically trying to bamboozle um, mainstream American evangelicalism into believing that uh, T.D. Jakes is not a modalist. Of course, he's not a modalist. He believes in, in, in you know, that God is three persons as long as by person you mean manifestation which is how modalists talk. Um, and now, uh, I, you know, a, a year later, it's you know, a little over a year now, he's basically saying that I'm aware of the theological uh, differences that exist between our tribe, that apparently the Calvinist tribe, and Pastor Joel. And I know my Reformed brothers like to treat Joel like a pinata, but there are worse things than being happy and encouraging at a time when most common prescription medications are antidepressants. I think that totally misses the entire point. The issue is, is that Joel Osteen doesn't preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That Joel Osteen, every single time he opens his mouth to quote a biblical passage, he quotes it out of context, literally makes it narcissistically about you. He teaches that you create your reality by declaring things. I would go back into the archives of Fighting for the Faith where we reviewed Joel Osteen's recent appearance on Oprah's Life Class for for Mark Driscoll to basically brush aside all of those significant theological problems. They're not differences. They're problems. Joel Osteen is a heretic. He teaches a different gospel. He teaches a different Jesus. He never handles God's word correctly. The, and as a result of it, when sinners come to Lakewood or watch his program, rather than being driven to their knees 
in hearing God's law and knowing that they they are liable and guilty of transgressing God's law and face his wrath and judgment. Instead, he tells them constantly that God is for you. You're God, you know, you're God's masterpiece. And you, you, you just need to declare important things like I am strong. I am, I am made in the image. I am amazing and things like that, right? What's missing? Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. There's no need to repent in Joel Osteen's theology. This is not a theological difference. Okay? That's to kind of, you know, gloss over everything that Joel Osteen says and does and make it say, oh, it's just, that's just a variety of Christianity. I mean, that's what his tribe does. You know, the prosperity preacher tribe does. But over here, our tribe of new Calvinists, which, by the way, what is a new Calvinist? That doesn't make any sense to me. Okay, I mean, you're either a Calvinist or you're not a Calvinist. And he is apparently a postmodern mystic Calvinist that denies uh, Sola Scriptura. How can you be a Calvinist and deny Sola Scriptura? That doesn't make any sense. Anyway, sorry, I digress. But uh, so now, I mean, Driscoll's drifting. Okay, he's becoming as bland and fuzzy doctrinally and theologically as, well, well, people like... Um, T.D. Jakes and Joel Osteen. And it makes me wonder, okay, it makes me wonder if the reason why Driscoll is becoming less and less clearly definable doctrinally and theologically is because he's discovered that the more you blur doctrinal distinctives, the more rapidly your church grows. It just makes me wonder if that's really what's going on with Mark Driscoll. Because for somebody to come to the defense of the indefensible, theologically, doesn't make any sense to me. And to kind of give you an example, I mean, folks, I just literally, you know, I went onto the internet, went to YouTube, typed in Joel Osteen sermons, and I looked and I filtered it down to recent sermons within the last 30 days, okay? And up came a sermon. And just, you can do this with any Joel Osteen sermon. Just if you're up in the middle of the night and you're flipping channels and the infomercial time comes on where you got Joel Osteen coming up, you can find something like this rather easily. It doesn't matter what the sermon is. Pretty much Joel Osteen's message is the same. And it's not biblical Christianity. It's not faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. In fact, it's something completely different. But in order to do that, we've got to play our Joel Osteen update music. Here is Chip Skylark and My Shiny Teeth and Me. When I'm feeling lonely, sad as I can be. All by myself, an uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw don't have a flaw. My shiny teeth and me. My shiny teeth that twinkle just like the stars in space. My shiny teeth that sparkle and beauty to my face. My shiny teeth that glisten just like a Christmas tree. All right, that's our Joel Osteen update music, uh, My Shiny Teeth and Me by Chip Skylark. Um, anyway, um, <clears throat> you can find it on YouTube, by the way, if you were wondering. Here is, well, a recent uh, sermon of Joel Osteen's posted on YouTube by a 
well, a, a fan of his theology and doctrine and see if what you're hearing is just, you know, minor, small, insignificant, easy to just gloss and, you know, throw aside theological, you know, differences, differences of opinion, or if what we're hearing actually is bona fide for real, um, a different gospel. You listen in, you decide. All right, we're, I mean, we're only, what, 10 seconds? <laughs> Discover the champion. Is that what the biblical message is? Discover the champion in you? I thought the Apostle Paul said that we were by nature sinners, dead in trespasses and sins. It's Christianity doesn't call you to discover the champion in you, but to come to grips with the fact that you were born dead in trespasses and sins. In other words, to discover the sinner in you. Well, God bless you and welcome. Thanks so much for letting us come into your homes. We love you. If you're ever in our area, please stop by and be a part of one of our services. These are the finest people in all of Houston, Texas, right here at Lakewood. Love to have you come out whenever you can, but thanks for tuning in and thank you again for coming out today. And I like to get started with something funny and heard about this five-year-old boy named Tommy. It was his grandmother's birthday and after wishing her a happy birthday, he said, Grandmother, how old are you? She said, Tommy, I'm 39 and holding. He thought about it a moment, said, Grandmother, how old would you be if you let go? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hold up your Bible. Say it like you mean it. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be taught the Word of God. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same in Jesus' name. Now, that is the infamous Joel Osteen Creed, okay? This is my Bible. It is what it is it is and says what it says it says and, you know, I can do what it says it does and, you know, things like that, okay? Let's compare this to the summary of the Christian faith put together by the ancient church called the Nicene Creed, which, by the way, has a long pedigree going all the way back to the apostles. And this is what uh, what the church fathers referred to as the rule of faith. Now, the Nicene Creed is a very highly polished version of the rule of faith, but you can find the rule of faith, for instance, in the uh, writings of the church father Irenaeus in his, uh, in his books against heresies. Okay, specifically, it is writings against the Valentinian Gnostics. But l- listen to this creed, okay? I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. I, I believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. All right, so notice the difference here. 
the Nicene Creed, in confessing what Christianity is all about, is confessing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in their saving, justifying, and creating, saving, justifying, sanctifying work. Okay? It's all about what God has done for us. Okay? Let me go back and let's play the little Joel Osteen Creed again and just ask yourself, who is this creed about? Okay? Is it about God or is it about somebody else. You decide. Here we go. Hold up your Bible. Say it like you mean it. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the Word of God. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name. God bless you. So his creed is all about you. The Nicene Creed, the ancient creed, it's all about the triune God and what he's done for you. Big difference. You think this is just something you can gloss over, theologically brush aside? I don't think so. We continue. I want to talk to you today about seeing yourself as a masterpiece. Too many people go around feeling wrong on the inside. They don't really like who they are. They think, if I was just a little taller, if I had a better personality, if my metabolism was a little faster, or if I just looked like her, then I would feel good about myself. If I looked like her, I would not feel better about myself. I'd feel worse because I'm a dude. No, when God created you, he went to great lengths to make you exactly like he wanted. You didn't accidentally get your personality. You didn't just happen to get your height, your looks, your skin color, your gifts. God designed you on purpose to be the way you are. You have what you need to fulfill your destiny. If you have what you need to fulfill your destiny, which, by the way, this question comes to mind, how does the fall you know, into sin play into this man's theology? If you needed to be taller, God would have made you taller. If you needed to be a different nationality, God would have made you that way. If you needed to look like her instead of you, you would have looked like her. You've got to be... Now, where does the Bible say any of this? Are you familiar with any verses that say this? I can't think of any. Is it just a small thing that you can brush aside that somebody chronically and habitually makes assertions about God that can't be found in Scripture and is teaching it as if this is what Christianity believes, teaches, and confesses, and this is what the Scriptures teach? Is that a small problem that you can just gloss over and say, well, he's teaching things, he's all about being happy, and there's worse things that you can do. Yeah, there's worse things that you can do, and this, I think this would be an example of something far worse that you could do. Because, I mean, I never critique Joel Osteen and say, yeah, his problem is he's all about happiness. No, I always critique the fact that the substance of his message is flat-out contrary and runs 180 degrees in the wrong direction from what the biblical message teaches. Confident in who God made you to be. And Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's masterpiece. That means you are not ordinary. You didn't come off an assembly line. You weren't mass-produced. You were one of a kind. Okay, now, Ephesians 2.10 says, you are God's masterpiece. Is that what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 really says? Well, we're going to take a look at that in our Bibles. 
go ahead and flip on over to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to apply our three primary rules for sound biblical exegesis. And here it is. Are you ready? Context, context, and context. Now, the majority of false Bible teaching can be identified, isolated, and rejected by simply applying these three rules. Context, context, context. Now, there are other types of Bible twisting that take far more knowledge than just context, context, context. But context, 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 notice I keep repeating the three words here, gives us a solid basis for at least having a good idea about what a passage is about. Okay, so based upon what Joel Osteen said, okay, Ephesians 2.10 says, you are God's masterpiece. Okay, now is that a general um, statement made to all of humanity? Okay, if you're not a Christian, is that, we're all God's master. Is that what this verse is saying? When I look at this in context, will I be seeing the Apostle Paul who wrote the epistle to the Ephesians basically spelling out for everybody, listen, you need to know you are God's masterpiece. Well, let's take a look. And what we're going to do is we're going to start at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. In other words, we're going to do the unthinkable. We're going to read more than one verse. Okay. Now, and the reason I say that that way, because in most seeker-driven churches, reading more than one verse in context, or you're reading a large section of scripture, like we heard from Judah Smith at the uh, Awakening Revival, after you do such a feat, I mean, these people act like they they should earn a purple heart or something, okay? But the job of a pastor is to preach the word. It should be a normal thing for your pastor to be preaching through large sections of scripture in context. Just saying. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you, you Christians in the church of Ephesus, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, wait a second, okay? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 isn't about God telling us about how wonderful we are and how we're his masterpiece. Instead, this is God the Holy Spirit revealing to us that each and every one of us, by nature, when we were born, were children of wrath, that we followed sinful passions, okay? And those f- passions resided in our flesh, in our mind, and we were children of sons of disobedience. This is what Scripture says, okay? Hmm. It makes me wonder. You think there's a reason why Joel Osteen doesn't teach that? Because if he did... He'd probably empty out that arena, don't you think? But we continue, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, saved from what? What what, what are we saved from? Well, it says right there, the wrath of God, okay? We were by nature children of wrath, okay? So the idea here is this. Christianity is about saving you from the wrath of God. The reason why you're liable to experience that, and justly so, 
is because you were born dead in trespasses and sins, and you're by nature a son of disobedience or daughter if you're a female listener, okay? And here it says that by grace you have been saved, speaking to Christians, not to you know the world at large, but to Christians at the church in Ephesus. It's by grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, so not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Hmm. So verse 10, for we are God's workmanship. It doesn't say you're God's masterpiece. That's not what the Greek says at all. Workmanship is right. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And all of this is the result of the previous verses, for by grace you have been saved, saved from the wrath of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Salvation is a completely free gift. It's not the result of works, so that no one can boast. So verse 10, when we go back and put it in context, is not telling us how we are God's masterpiece and how we need to adopt a new way of looking at ourselves, that we are just the most amazing thing ever. Now we continue with Joel Osteen's sermon. We can again. I'm asking the question: Is are these differences that we have with Joel Osteen just things that we can just gloss over, like Mark Driscoll has, just brush aside like they're not important? Listen in. Nobody in this world has your fingerprints. There will never be another you. If you're going to reach your highest potential, you have to see yourself as unique, as an original, as God's very own masterpiece. It's interesting because Ephesians 2.10 says nothing about you need to see yourself as God's masterpiece in order for you to achieve your potential. The text doesn't say that at all. When I was in my early 20s, I was sitting on the beach in India all alone watching the sunset. Were you on the Ganges River? It was a magnificent scene. The water was so blue. As far as I could see from the right to the left, miles and miles of beach and palm trees. The sun was huge on the horizon, just about to set. As I sat there reflecting, thinking about my life, I heard God ask me something. Not out loud, but just an impression down in here. He said, Joel, you think this is a beautiful picture, do you? I said, yes, God, I think this is a magnificent picture. He said, well, what do you think would be my most prized painting, my most incredible creation? Now, notice this story is about a direct revelation that Joel Osteen received. This puts him in the same category of of teacher as Kat Kerr, Patricia King, Chuck Pierce. Now, the only thing that's different, you know, is that, well, Joel Osteen's got a slicker marketing ability he's he's very polished but theologically this puts him in the same genre of teacher this is a direct revelation that he claims god gave him down in his heart and he's preaching it from the pulpit as if this is a word 
of God that the people there at, well, Lakewood need to be hearing. I thought about it a moment. I said, God, it must be this sunset. This is magnificent. He said, no, it's not this. Earlier that year, I'd been in the Rocky Mountains. They were spectacular. I said, God, I bet it's the Rocky Mountains. He said, no, not that. I thought, what could it be? The solar system, the Milky Way. He said, no, Joel, my most prized possession. The painting that I'm the most proud of is you. So God told Joel Osteen his most prized possession is Joel Osteen. If this isn't blasphemy, then I don't know what is. I thought me. Couldn't be me. I'm ordinary. I'm just like everybody else. He said, no, you don't understand. When I made the solar system, the waters, the mountains, I was proud of that. That was great. But Joel, when I made you, I breathed my very life into you. I created you in my own image. Friends. Yet, you're a descendant of Adam, Joel. That makes you sinful by nature. And according to Second Ephesians chapter 2, you were by nature an object of God's wrath, born in sin, dead in trespasses and sins. What you're saying here, that God specifically revealed to you outside of his word is actually contradicted by God's word. This makes you not just a dangerous teacher, it actually makes you a false prophet. Now, I come back to the whole point that I was making. You know, Mark Driscoll's now coming to Joel Osteen's aid and, and, you know, basically saying, you know, there's worse things that you can do about, you know, than just, you know, talking about the importance of being happy. That's not what Joel Osteen's doing here. Joel Osteen's actually acting as a prophet, claiming direct revelation from God. He twisted Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. His whole creed that he puts forward is me-centered rather than Christ-centered and God-centered or focused on the work of the Trinity. And, um, and now, when we test his direct revelation against the clear writings and teachings of the Word of God, we find that his direct revelation that he claim is coming from God himself is actually contradicted by the clear teachings of Scripture. This makes Joel Osteen a wolf and a false prophet, not just some innocuous guy with a really good shiny set of teeth, okay, who likes to make people happy. This makes him a bona fide wolf in sheep's clothing, the kind of which we are warned against by Jesus himself. You are God's most prized possession. Don't go around feeling wrong about yourself. Quit wishing you were taller, had a better personality, or looked like somebody else. You've been painted by the most incredible painter there could ever be. When God created you, he stepped back and looked, said that was good, another masterpiece. He stamped his approval on you. You know how on the back of our shirts, most of the time, there's a tag says made in America, made in China, made in Mexico. Well, somewhere on you, there's a tag that says made by Almighty God. Now put your shoulders back, hold your head up high. You are extremely valuable. You have royal blood flowing through your veins. You are wearing a crown of favor. When those thoughts come in the morning, telling you everything that you're not, you need to remind yourself, I've got the fingerprints of God all over me. The way I look, the way I smile, my gifts, my personality, I know I am not average, I am a masterpiece. That's the thoughts that should be playing in our mind all day long. Not, I'm slow, 
I'm unattractive. I'm just one of the seven billion people on earth. No, God did not make anything average. If you have breath to breathe, you are a masterpiece. Now, people may try to make you feel average. Your own thoughts may try to convince you that you're ordinary. Life will try to push you down and steal your sense of value. That's why all through the day, you have to remind yourself who your painter is. When you dwell on the fact that Almighty God breathed His life into you, He approved you, equipped you, empowered you, then any thoughts of low self-esteem, inferiority, they won't have a chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- this is not what Scripture teaches. In fact, this is what Scripture warns against. Second Timothy chapter 3, But understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving the good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. That's who Scripture's warning us about. Joel Osteen and his type. The lovers of self. Joel Osteen's job is to call sinners to repentance and faith and trust in Christ who bled and died on the cross, who was nailed to the tree, who was pierced for their transgressions, bruised for their iniquities. The punishment, the chastisement that brought them peace was upon Christ. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them, right? This is what Scripture says. Well, he's not calling sinners to repentance. He's telling sinners, rather than saying, you need to repent and be forgiven, he's saying to them, you are a God's masterpiece. God's got his thumbprint on you. You're just amazing. You're special. You need to not have low self-esteem. So I come back to my question. Are these the types of differences that Christian believers are supposed to just gloss over, brush aside, poo-poo, and say, oh, that's not, it doesn't matter. No, Joel Osteen, yeah, he, he makes people happy, but there's worse things that he could be doing, you know? Yeah, there is something worse that he is already doing. And that is, he's not preaching the gospel. Law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. As a result of it, he's basically puffing up the egos of the people in his audience, telling them how special they are, while they're on the broad road that leads to destruction, the broad road to hell. So, yeah, he's actually doing something worse than making people happy. He's sending them to an eternity in hell. All of this being done while claiming he's preaching the message of Christ. I don't think that's something that we can just brush aside. What do you think? All right, we're up on our second break. On the other side of the break, we're going to be listening to a sermon. We're going to be reviewing a sermon from South Hills Church in Corona from their brand new teaching pastor, Chris Harrell. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. If you'd like to email me, email address talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, facebook.com forward slash Christian or at Christian on Twitter. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. 
You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Oh, hey, I didn't hear you come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Palm with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. This will be the first sermon that we've ever reviewed by this gentleman. And based on what I've heard, it's not going to be the last. go. 
The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via South Hills Church, Corona, California. Formerly where Chris Songson held uh, the position as lead teaching pastor and has now stepped aside and handed the uh, teaching responsibility over to Chris Harrell. In fact, this is his very first sermon preached as the head teaching pastor out there at uh, South Hills. And the name of the sermon is entitled One Man Band. Now, it's going to be a sermon supposedly revealing to us the reason why Samson... Well, fell to the wiles and deceitfulness of Delilah. I'm not going to tell you why that apparently happened. I'm going to let that unfold as we listen to this very first sermon by Chris Harrell. So let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here's Chris Harrell in his sermon entitled One Man Band. Well, Happy New Year, you guys. As you can see, man, God is doing something awesome in our midst. And if you're new to our church, you've come at the perfect series. And if this is your home church, I want to tell you this. There was no other series as we prayed and we asked God, Lord, in this season, this new transition, me coming in as a campus pastor, us changing the guard and us moving into a new new season of building something we only see right now. We only see right now in our hearts because God is revealing something to our pastor. What is the most important series we can start the new year off with? I mean, of all the things that you want our church to know, to to grab a hold of, to get in their heart, everything that you want to set as the foundation, what would be the number one series that you would want us to start with? Where should we begin, God? And there was no other series that came to our hearts that really was more important that we believe God was saying, this is where this church needs to go. We need you to get here. And so when we heard that from God, we just got real serious about it and said, okay, God, we want to hear from you. And then we want our people to get in alignment with where you're at. As you know, when your back is out of alignment, your whole body can shut down. And those of you who have ever been to a chiropractor, your back goes out on you. You're good for nothing. You can't do ordinary stuff that you could do yesterday. Once your back's out, you're out. You know what I'm talking about. That's what happens to a church. When a church gets out of alignment with what God has called the church to be, the whole body can get incapacitated. The whole body can be slow. Now, by the way, just to make something clear, he's not talking about the Great Commission, okay? That the church needs to be in alignment with the Great Commission. No, he's talking about a specific, unique vision that God gives to a seeker-driven church. That's what he's talking about. Down. And instead of us progressing the kingdom of God through South Hills Church, we get stagnant, we slow down, and we're just looking around wondering what's going on. Now, I think that God has way more, way more for us to do in 2013 and beyond than what we're currently doing. But it will not happen if we do not get, get this topic, this series, deep inside of our souls and understand its, its ramifications if we don't. And so of all the things that we wanted to do, we felt like this was the one that our, our, our foundation, and even as the campus pastor, there was nothing else in my heart. As we talked, me and Pastor Chris, there was nothing else in our hearts. There was nothing else we believed that you needed to hear and you needed to understand from God's word more importantly than this. And so I applaud you for being here. Thank you for starting your new year off by re-engaging and reconnecting and reprioritizing your relationship with God and your personal faith in him. And it's hard to slow down. It's difficult to do that. And speaking of slowing down, I remember when I first got my license, I didn't understand the idea of the accelerator um, or the gas tank. 
See, on every gas gauge, there's this thing that says F and then E. And I- okay, so notice he's not starting in God's word. We're starting with a life story, an anecdotal experience with his challenges of learning to understand the basic concepts of driving. I thought F meant fuel. So I didn't really know what E meant, but I figured it out. Um, I, uh, I, I was driving, I remember, and I'm the kind of driver, I don't know about you, maybe you're the kind of driver I'm about to explain, or you know someone who knows someone who's like this. But when I'm making great time, and I'm on a road trip, and I got a bunch of people in the car, I don't want to pull over to stop. Because I'm making great time. I've passed like 18 diesels, two soccer mom mobiles, and a slow Oldsmobile with an old lady white knuckling the steering wheel. I don't want to slow down and stop. I'm making great time. And because of that, it won't matter if you have to go to the bathroom. When I was a youth pastor, man, the kids would get in the back and be like, Pastor Chris, we got to the bathroom. We're not stopping. I've passed 19 diesels. You know what happened? And you know what it's like? I mean, all of a sudden, because I'm thinking I'm going to have to slow down and I'm going to have to pull over the side of the road. And then I'm going to see while I'm waiting for all you, you sorry saps to come out of the restroom because you have this bodily thing you got to do. I'm watching every diesel go by, every single one of them. And my life is passing me by one semi at a time. And if it wasn't worse enough, then old grandma comes by in the Oldsmobile putting along. And I'm like, that's my life. And it's difficult to slow down, and, and, uh, and that was a part of what God had to teach me to do. And one time, he taught me really clear. I was by myself. I was driving. I'd been visiting family, and I was heading home, and I was, I, I was really far away, and I hadn't seen this family. It was an aunt and uncle. I didn't really know. And, uh, and I was coming back, and I had passed a few exits that I knew gas stations. They had the big Chevron or Shell sign, and I was like, no, nah, I'm good, right? And those of you who are crazy like, like I used to be. Thank God for salvation. The way I used to think, and I would risk it, and I'd be, I'd put myself in this. You know the E, right? The E has like three hashes. The big one, the middle, small one, and then the big one, right? When you're watching the gauge come down, all of a sudden, the old ones, the digital ones are different now. But when it would get, it would get to the top hash, and you're like, I'm good, man. I got another like 30, 40 miles. You get to that middle one, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm probably getting a little more dicey. Then you get to that bottom hash. But then those of you who are really, really sketchy, you know that you got that red line underneath it. And then some of you are so bad, you know what it's like. You got the top of the red line, the middle of the red line, and the bottom of the red line. And then you're really in trouble. Well, I was young in my driving experience, and I thought I could get to the bottom of the red line. I'm fine. I'm good. I don't need to slow down. I don't need to pull over. I don't need to deal. I'm good. I'm all right. I'm, I got the wind at my back. I've gotten this far on my own. What do I need to change what I'm doing for? I've gotten here. What do I need to change the system for? I'm good. So I ran out of gas. And I was clunking along and I finally pull over and there's this sign coming up and I'm like, oh, the sign's going to tell me. Oh, good. Okay. There's a sign there. I'm, I'm safe. I'm not so far out because there was nothing around me. Just open land. And the sign said, next gas, 31 miles. And I had to walk the two miles back to get back to the city. I didn't know where I was. It was cold. So it took me like 45 minutes to walk there. And when I got there, you know, I couldn't figure out who to go to. And I was just by myself all because I didn't want to take time to slow down. And I ran out of gas. And, you know, I find that in my own life. And I'm sure some of us know exactly what this feels like. Not only do we, we, we not pay attention to the gas gauge, not pay attention to the cluttering of the car, not pay attention to how far we've gone since we've last refueled our car, I find that I, that we also do that when it comes to our own life. 
our personal life and even our faith. That we go long and long and we do these long periods of time and we don't refuel, we don't re-energize our faith in some specific areas that are necessary. We avoid it. We don't pull over. We don't ask for help. And it's like, well, I don't really know where the gas stations are. I, I don't really know what's going on. And, and so as we go into a new year, you know, we have this opportunity to change the way we think. But the reality is many of us probably still think like this. It's like, well, I've got too much going on to stop. So I'll just wait or I'll get, you know what? I'll get back to church next weekend. And the next weekend turns into three weekends and then three weekends turns into six weeks and six weeks turn into six months. And then it's been so long and you've. By the way, um, if you're a member, a regular attender or formerly a regular attender at a seeker driven church, showing up to a rock and roll show with five or six verses ripped out of context that narcissistically focus you on you. Um, that's not going to recharge your spiritual batteries or refuel you. In fact, you might as well stay home and not attend that kind of church. But if you really want to be spiritually fed, then you need to attend a church that where the pastor opens up God's word and rightly handles it and rightly teaches it and isn't getting skimpy with it. Like what I mean by that is ripping verses out of context, stringing them together and calling that a biblical sermon. It's not. A biblical sermon actually requires you to teach through large sections of scripture in context so that people know what God's word says. And as Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So this is an important thing. So you know, if if you're feeling bad because you're listening to this guy going, yeah, it's been a while since I've been to my seeker-driven church, don't worry. You don't need to go there. Go find a different church where you're actually be fed. Then you can actually be refueled spiritually. You've disengaged and disconnected from the very fuel source that you need, which is what God created you be in, which is a local church community. And we get disengaged. And, and maybe some of you would say, you know, it's not just that, but maybe it's like, well, I know my marriage probably needs some attention, but it's fine. You know, I mean, what marriages don't fight? Everybody fights. We're good. I'm sure we'll get through this. I'm sure we'll be fine. And so there's things that you avoid. You don't handle certain conversations that you need to handle. And you just act as if that thing is going to get better if you leave it alone. And as we know, anything that's ever been infected that you wrap up and try to avoid and leave alone never gets better. It always gets Worse, some of us, it would be, you know, uh, our, the, the thing I'm doing is probably not too healthy. The way I'm living, the way I've been living, the, the food I'm eating, uh, the way I'm talking to my husband, the way I'm talking to my wife, the time I'm not spending with my kids, the way I'm in debt and the amount of money that I owe people, just how I manage our, our, our budget, our finances at our home. It's just not. By the way, these are the effects of sin. These are the consequences, temporal consequences of sin. Those are symptoms of the root. Our root problem is that we're born dead in trespasses and sins. That's why these types of things crop up in our life and occur in our lives. Not wise. I know there's a better way, but I mean, come on, man. You know, everyone's got problems these days, right? Our economy's rough, and so it just is what it is. And so, you know, who doesn't have financial issues? And and then maybe some of us would be, you know, we'd be thinking, uh, I'm sure that there's a few things that. I need to learn. I'm sure there's a few things about God I might need to learn, but who doesn't have stuff to learn? And, you know, I guess it'll come in time. And what I want us to understand today is that God wants us to learn how to manage these things. And if we don't know that, if we don't know, if we don't know, 
what it is that God wants us to begin with, we will continually stay in a position of avoiding and denying the very things we need to refuel our life. Mm, okay, you got any passages that say this? Your, your job is to preach the word. You're supposed to actually show this to us from Scripture, from clear passages. What Bible passages say these things? You know what happens if you avoid eating right and if you avoid taking care of your physical body? You ev- yeah, you, you blimp out. Eventually we'll get sick. And you know what happens when you avoid taking care of your spiritual body and your emotional body? You eventually will get emotionally and spiritually sick. Yeah, but see, you don't take care of your spiritual body, so to speak, by attending a church that doesn't rightly handle and teach God's word. That's spiritual poison, not any kind of a healthy drink at all. And so some of us came in, and God, you don't know this, but God has set you up. You came back to church because it's a new year, and you hadn't been in a while. And you're like, man, i got to get things right. i got to get my priorities straight. And God loves that about you, and I applaud you for being here for that. But God has set you up. Because God, this morning, is seeking you out. He desires to change your life and to fulfill it because he is so absolutely radically in love with you. He loves you. Um, Can we talk about law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins? What's this thing about God wants to just radically bless me because he's so in love with me and all that kind of stuff? I mean, the way you're saying it makes it sound like Jesus is some kind of weird, creepy dude who wants to be my girlfriend so much he is missing the opportunity to bless you because he can't bless a lifestyle that won't do the things he's laid out for us to do and today this is all law by the way this is a confusion of law and gospel see jesus wants to bless you but he can't see he can't nope not at all well that's actually what scripture says okay if you have your bible flip on over to i think romans romans chapter five here it is Verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So here's the idea. The, the Jesus that um, that Mark is, uh, not Mark, Chris Harrell is already painting a portrait of is this is a guy who's just radically in love with you dude and he totally wants to bless your life but he can't well see the god i believe in you see when i was still an enemy christ died for my sins and if you don't want to if you're, you're uncomfortable saying that jesus dying on the cross for our sins is god blessing us then you have no concept of what a blessing from god is a full and complete pardon of all of your sins was won for you by Christ on the cross while you were still an enemy of Christ. Yeah, God didn't wait for you to clean up your act. While you were still hostile and hated him, Christ died for your sins. So, hmm, I'm having a hard time comprehending this Jesus or God that Chris Harrell is promoting here 
because it doesn't sound like the biblical Jesus. You've been set up, many of you. You're in this room because God has drawn you here and because he wants to speak something directly to you. So where do we start? I don't know where to start. And see, some of you, that's where you're at. You're not even at the place where you're like, yeah, no, I'm fine. I'll live how I live and I'll avoid this and I'll avoid that. I'm good. You're not that. You're actually, you know what? I know that I know that I'm running on empty. I know I haven't refueled, but I'm so out of alignment. I don't even know where to start. I mean, my marriage is so jacked up. My finances are so jacked up. My kids are so jacked up. My job, my boss, me, the way I feel, my diet, who I am, how I am, my love for God, all of it, man. I don't even know where to begin. I wouldn't even know where to start. What's my first step? I mean, literally, what is it that we do? Maybe we should start at the cross. What you're describing are the consequences of sin. So you need to start by telling them they're sinners. The reason why they're having all of these burps, hiccups, and bad consequences show up in their life is because they're sinful by nature. These are the fruits and consequences of sin. This shows that they are subject to the wrath of God in need of a Savior. So first and foremost, we must get them to repent of their sin, see themselves for what they are, and to be forgiven knowing that Christ Jesus bled and died on the cross for their sins. Don't you think that would be a good place to start with somebody? Because I've got all these things. I'm lonely. It's a new year, but I feel like I'm still in last year in some ways. I don't know what to do. Do I pray? Do I memorize scripture? Do I tithe? Do I get into a small group? Do I share my faith publicly with someone I don't know? Do I watch the passion? I mean, what do I do? Really, you know, do I read the Left Behind series? I mean, what? Where do I go with this? And see, that's where I want to focus today's message on. I want to focus on where I believe God wants us as a church at South Hills to start and where I believe God is calling you to start. And this is the message that he's laid on my heart for you this year, this beginning year, the first message. So he's blaming this message on God. God laid this on his heart. Of me being the campus pastor for you, this is what I really believe God wants you to hear. And the cool thing about it is, is that there are tons of people in the Bible who went through the exact same thing. And I love this. The Bible is so relevant because where you're facing this world and how you're looking at it is the same way that people in the Bible faced it. And what I want to do is look at a story today. There are a lot of people in the Bible that face, where do I begin? What am I missing? What do I need to get in my life? Why is it that I keep getting these, these circumstances to go against me? And I don't understand that. Is there something I'm missing? And where do I begin? There's so many stories, but there's one specific one I really believe God wants us to talk about and look, look into today. And I want to invite you today. We're going to talk today about um, Samson, and he's found in Judges chapter 16. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open your Bible or turn on your Bible to Judges chapter 16, verse 13. And I'm going to say this for the next two weeks. I've said it for the last two times I've spoken. So if you've heard it again, just smile and nod. And if you haven't, well, this is who I'm sharing it for. If you are a man... And you have been at South Hills Church longer than a year, and you call yourself a Christian. You're a Christ follower. You are a believer in Christ. You think that Jesus is the way you ought to live your life, and God's word is the model by which you should live your life. It is the blueprint for a life of success on this earth, and that is your belief system. And the Bible is a blueprint for success in life on this earth. Um, have you ever heard of the Christian martyrs? I mean, people who actually have died, they were killed, murdered for their professing faith in Christ. By all of the world's standards, they were not successful people. And Jesus, being the principal person to talk about here, he was crucified. Was that successful? 
the Bible is our blueprint for success in this life. Not familiar with that Bible. You've been coming to this church longer than a year and you are a man. I want to share something with you for a moment. If you're a guest, I'm not speaking to you. But if that is you, I would like to ask, if you did not bring your Bible today, that this would be the last Sunday that you don't bring your Bible ever again. And the reason for that is because we need men to model to our teenagers and to our children that there are men in this city that love God's word and believe that God's word is the blueprint for a successful life because there's nowhere in our communities anymore where these kids get to see that. They don't get to see men who carry their Bible, read their Bible, care about the Bible, want to learn the Bible, take notes on the Bible, come to church, and instead of just doing this, are actually like, come on, go ahead. I'm going to write this down. I'm going to circle stuff in my Bible. I'm going to highlight it. And I look, I use my iPad. Okay. And I use you version, Y O U version. And I download it and I can highlight stuff by dragging my finger. So I don't care if you're the digital Bible reader, or if you want to do the old school paper in your hand, Bible, it doesn't matter to me. What I do ask though, is that if you're a man and you're a Christ follower, and this is your church and you've been here longer than a year, please, please bring it. Because as the former youth pastor, I know what it feels like right now to have teenagers not see a group of men that are valuable god's word and we cannot build a church okay can i point something out like really obvious it takes more than having a bible under your arm to demonstrate to the youth that you take god's word seriously it also requires you to open it and for the pastor to rightly model sound biblical exegesis rightly handling God's word, pointing us to Christ. And already this is problematic. And the reason it's problematic is because what we're hearing is, is that God, the Bible's God's blueprint for a successful life here on earth. The Bible was written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. It's not a blueprint for success. In fact, believing and proclaiming and teaching and living the way the Bible what it, its message is and what it teaches us could actually get you killed. If we do not have a bunch of men that are saying, you know what, I want to demonstrate to this community and to this city, I'm here to learn God's word. I'm here to, to figure out what it's supposed to do in my life. And I can't do that by just not engaging it. So please, if that would be something that you fit into, I'm asking you to go ahead and do that. And once again, if that in some way, shape, or form hoots your whittle feelings, I'll be out back and I'd love to talk to you face-to-face, man-to-man. And you can bring the Bible, I'll bring the Bible, and we'll discuss it together. God bless you all. My man, I saw you. It was so funny. Can I give you a little testimony on what we're doing, though? Last week, guy comes. If you're in here, I'm I'm not going to say your name, but I am going to talk about you right now. Um, He comes around the corner, man. He's walking with his wife, right? All big smile, coming to church, all stoked. He's early, too. He's actually, hey, guess what, guys? He was on time. You know church starts at 9.30? Anyways, um, so he's coming around the corner, right? And he's on time early, and he's, like, walking up, and he sees me. And it was like, man, it was like a kid got caught with his hand in a cookie jar. He looks at me. He's like, Pastor Chris, I'm sorry, man. I forgot my Bible today, man. I'm so sorry, dude. I promise I will bring it next week. Like, I did, it was, you know, I got in a hurry, man. I'm going to bring it. But I'll take notes today. I'll take notes today and I'll be on my phone. I'm not texting. I promise I'm taking notes, man. I'm, I'm in, I'm, I'm behind you, pastor. Come on. And I was like, you're all right, dog. All right. Hit him on the butt on the way back. (laughs) And then last week, another guy comes up to me and I'm going to tell you why we're doing this. This next story probably means more to me than about anything else I could share about this thing. He comes up to me 
Don't forget, Pastor Chris started and planted this church in the mission of our church, you. Our mission together is to reach unchurched people, to lead unchurched people into a growing relationship with Christ. That's who we're about, to get built up enough and to get deep enough in our faith so that we have a big passion for people who don't share our faith. And don't let me get started on if you think you're deep and you ain't brought no one who's going to hell if they don't know Jesus to church in two years. I don't care how deep you are. You still need floaties on your relationship with God. Anyways, I'll get off that. You apparently have gone to the Perry Noble School of uh, Pastoral Etiquette and Tact. Mm-hmm. Nice. But what this guy comes up to me last week, right? Brand new to church. He'd been here a few weeks. And he comes up to me and he goes, hey, Pastor Chris. And he goes like this. He's got this Bible in his hand. And he goes. <laughs> Some of you don't know what that sound is because you've never opened a new Bible. But that's what a new Bible sound sounds like when you open it. The, the pages are still stuck together. So they stuck together. And I was loving it. I'm like, dude, I love, this, is, this is exactly who our church is for, is this guy right here. He's, all, he's a man, and he's insecure about the fact that he's a grown man. He doesn't know anything about God, and he wants to lead his family, and he doesn't know where to start. And that's the kind of man we want to reach. That's the man we're looking for. That's the man God wants to send to our church. That's the man I want to preach to every single week. I'm not going to talk to you like you're a little boy. I'm going to talk to you like you're a man. And you wouldn't have it any other way if you're a real man. I'm not going to over-talk you. I'm not going to talk to you about stuff you don't understand. I'm going to slow down. I'm going to explain things real well. But I promise you. When are you going to actually open up the Bible yourself and preach the word? That's your job, Pastor. That's what Scripture says. If you don't understand the Bible, you're in the right place. We will slow down for you. We invite you. You don't have to worry about what you don't know. We'll take care of that together. All you need to do is be willing to. Yeah, we'll see if you are capable of rightly handling God's word. We'll be looking very carefully at how you handle it once you finally get to it. Why don't you open it and start preaching it? To grow and be a man and say, I don't know, but I'm willing to figure it out. Let's do this together. So he cracks this bad boy open. And this is the question he asks, and this is so funny. This is so funny to me. He goes, hey, uh, Pastor Chris, how come, uh, how come, and if you feel this way, this is, this is why I'm telling the stories for us. He goes, hey, the, um, the scripture verses that you put up there for all the people who aren't um, a part of the church or not believers yet, the new people, not the people who've been coming longer than a year, certainly the men. He maybe didn't say it exactly like that. That's my paraphrase, just so you know. Hopefully we're getting the point across. And... He says, but, um, but the thing that was up on the screen for them, it was different than what I'm reading. It's, it's, um, what, what is that? Do you guys hear how awesome that question is? That's someone who doesn't know the, the Bible's not a part of his life yet. And he's trying to make it a part of his life so much that he doesn't even understand what there is to understand about it. That's what we want. We want those conversations being had in our lobbies, in our pews, and out in that plaza. That's the conversation. We're looking for people like that. I ain't looking for Christians. I ain't looking for safe folk. There's plenty of churches for Christians and safe folk in this city. Go drive up and... Yeah, there's plenty of churches for saved folk. So if you're saved, you don't need to go to uh, South Hills anymore. You could just leave. If you're saved, get out of there. They're not looking for saved folk. So go find a church for Christians. Now that's preposterous. Okay, and I would recommend that you take a look at my my website, letterofmark.us, L-E-T-T-E-R-M-A-R-Q-U-E dot U-S, and look for the article entitled, For Whom Do Pastors Exist? Or I walk you through all of the biblical texts that show that pastors exist to feed and build up Christ's sheep, those would be Christians. So here you've got a pastor 
from the pulpit saying this church doesn't exist for Christians. That's absurd because the pastoral office is solely for the feeding and care of Christians. No joke. I lay this out in this in this article. Again, the name of it is For Whom Do Pastors Exist? And you can find it at letterofmark.us. Yeah, that's a bad start here. Down Ontario Boulevard, there's like nine of them. We're looking for people who don't know how to read the Bible. And we're looking for some deep Christians who have a heart for those people. And you don't think being deep is getting with a bunch of other Christians and talk about how you can get deep and not even care about people who don't know Jesus. We're looking for people who have a Yeah, what a completely bizarre stereotype. By the way, okay, I remember being a young Christian. I remember it, okay? And I did this at a, at a church that wasn't seeker driven they actually opened up the bible and taught it to people they and you know what if you were if you asked questions they would say oh that's a great question let me help you along here okay but they didn't have to dumb down the messages and you know because we don't want to be deep they were very deep now they were wrong because they were very pietistic but they were deep they didn't shirk their responsibility being deep in god's word so here you're just basically knocking other churches for doing what Christ tells them to do, what God's word tells pastors to do, to feed and build up God's sheep and his the church through the preaching and teaching of the word in depth. Yeah, not a good sign. This is not a good sign at all. A heart like Jesus, he said, I'm here to seek and save the lost, the ones who don't know, the ones with questions, the ones with doubts, the ones who don't understand why. That's what this church was planted on, and I will see to it that the vision he started with will continue, and we will get radical about it. Yeah, you go ahead, because the you know your pastor or former pastor, Chris Songson, that's not God's vision for your church. Christ's vision for your church is laid out in the um, Great Commission and also in Luke chapter 24, Okay. He's already cast the vision. Jesus has. No church gets to get off of that mission and vision. Got it? So he goes, hey, pastor. He goes, um, how come it's different? I go, well, what translation are you using? Right? I mean, that's as you do. You would ask what translation. And his response was awesome. He goes, I don't know. Uh, English? Uh, English? I said, yeah, man, me too. Actually, we're, we're told English is the translation. Me and you are both using English. But let me see the side of your Bible, KJV. That means King James Version, okay? So let's get the these and the thous and the thuses on out of your life. Let's do an NIV. Let's do an NLT. Let's do an NET. You can read the message for all I care. I preach from the NIV. So if you want to bring that, you can bring that. If you want to drop that down on the U version, you can do that. But that there, my men... Of South Hills is where we believe God wants to take this church. Your wife needs you to do that. Your daughter needs you to do that. Your son needs you to do that. And if you're single, your future wife wants to see that you're doing that. I'm trying to help you out, son. So please bring your Bible. And that cutie that's running around here will be like, now that's a man I could serve. That's a man I could obey. That's a man I could submit to. That's a man I could walk with. That's a man I could pray for. That's a man I could do other things with once we get married. Just keeping it real. Judges chapter 16, if you have it, say yeah. yeah. Judges chapter 16, verse... Just so you know, this is the first sermon in the sermon series, the first sermon and sermon series preached by Pastor Chris Harrell. Okay? Notice where he's going to start. Okay? We're going to start a sermon series at the tail end of the story of Samson. 
Not a good sign. Verse 13, verse 13 says this. Delilah then said to Samson, all this time you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. Now, this story is... Now, stop. Okay, folks, do you do this when you uh, watch a television show? Okay. Let me think of a, a popular TV show. Okay. Uh, like Once Upon a Time. Are you familiar with that ABC program, Once Upon a Time? Or Doctor Who? Or or, or even Supernatural? Just, just pick... Uh, you know, or 24, just, it doesn't matter, okay? Whatever somebody's told you, you really need to be watching this television show, okay? Do they recommend that you start at season four, episode 13? No, nobody does this, okay? This is a bad sign. When, when, why would you do to the Bible what you refuse to do with your own television watching, okay? When you start a new television show you like to start at the beginning and you start at season one episode one and you work your way in order so that you can enjoy it the way the story was meant to be told okay judges chapter 16 verse 13 begins with this word then that word should tell you something okay this is literally like starting a, a series three quarters of the way through it and then three quarters of the way through the series and then two thirds of the way through a particular episode. You know nothing about what's going on in the story. Nothing whatsoever. He's not telling you hokum about Samson's story at all. You know nothing about him. Okay, but we're going to start at Judges chapter 16, verse 13 that begins with the word, then Delilah. What happened before this? Who's Delilah? Who's Samson? How did he get there? Where is he? Where? What's the? What's, uh, he's not teaching you this story, and there's a reason for that. The reason is because what he's about to tell you regarding this story isn't what this story teaches at all. By starting off near the end of the story, he can control what he's showing you, make it look like it's biblical, and then twist it so that he can he can control the punchline of this text. No joke, that's what's going on. It's very well known, but very literally understood. Literally, not a word, but it is. Um, let's see what we can learn now about our life when it comes to being refueled and where we can start. There and then... So is the story of Samson and Delilah all about you learning how to refuel yourself spiritually? Not at all. But we continue. Everybody say there and then. Samson was a Nazarite. If you're taking notes and you're a man in this room and you've been a Christian longer than a year and you obviously would have notes to take, this is where you can start writing down so you can grow your own faith and take responsibility for what it is that you're learning and then you can reteach that to your kids this week. So, But as soon as you're saved, be sure to leave because you're not really, you, that church isn't for saved people. Nazarite. A Nazarite was something. It was three parts to being a Nazarite very quickly. Number one, no wine. Number two, no dead bodies. Number three, no cut hair. No wine, no dead bodies, no cut hair. That meant to be a Nazarite. So Samson had a weird teenage years. He couldn't get drunk at his friend's house like his other friends. He couldn't kill cats, and he had really, really long hair. So that's Samson. So now he grows up. He's very strong. He was anointed. This is another great word to write down. Everybody say anointed. Anointed means that he had a special gift from God for a special purpose. 
And God anoints people for, with a special gift for a special purpose. Samson had a special purpose. He was anointed. Now, what we see... Now, what was his purpose? What was he anointed to do? And you, boy, you make it sound like you, you could be anointed just like Samson. God's going to do that to you too. Is that what this text is saying? No. Here is that he is involved with a girl named Delilah, and Delilah is a piece of work. Um, she was asking for the secret of Samson's strength, and she has already asked him two times. And each time she told, uh, he told her what it was. He would wake up the next morning with the exact thing on him. So she's trying to figure out, why are you anointed? What is it about you that is so strong? Why can you not be defeated? Now, the Philistines hated Samson and hated Samson's God. And they wanted to kill Samson because Samson would whoop their tail, man. He would grab a jawbone of a donkey. He knocked out a thousand of them. These guys, the Philistines sacrificed babies. They were just these brutal rulers. And they hated Samson and hated Samson's God because Israel, with this small little country, whooping on the Philistines, which were huge, a massive country. And it's this small little, the size of our town beating up on like the rest of the United States. It was crazy. And they're like, if we kill Samson, we could kill Israel and we get rid of this stench of this Yahweh God and all that he is about. Well, Samson is now unaware that Delilah has been sent to try to find out his strength so the Philistines can kill him. That's what's going on there. And then let's get back into the story. He replied, if you weave the seven braids of my hair into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with the pen, I'll become as weak. Was that a sufficient explanation as to what's going on in this text? I, I would think not. Flip back to Judges chapter 13. Let's find out what's going on. Now, we need a little bit more context than just the story of Samson. Okay, And that's this. The children of Israel are now in the promised land. You remember reading the story of the Exodus? Okay. Well, the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Well, they eventually made it to the promised land. Joshua led them into the promised land. Remember the story of the fall of Jericho, after that Ai, and then the rest of the cities. And they conquer the promised land, but they didn't totally get rid of the people they were supposed to get rid of. And so those people that were there prior to them arriving, they were idolaters. And they seduced and tempted the people of Israel to worship their false gods and the children of Israel would do so. And then God would punish them for doing that and do that by selling them into the hands of, you know, these different groups like the Philistines. Okay. And, you know, this was God's punishment. And then God would come and rescue them using a judge. Okay. So there's this cycle that, you know, God restores them, comes, rescues them, saves them, Okay, and then they rebel against God. They fall into idolatry. God judges them and then sells them into slavery. And then God comes and rescues them again. All of this because, well, somewhere in Israel at this time, in the tribe of Judah, there were men who were in the direct genetic line of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus himself tells us uh, on the road to Emmaus and in other places that the scriptures are about him. He says that Moses testified about him. That, um, that he, you know, on the road to Emmaus, he tells the disciple, he basically opens up the scriptures and shows them all the things written about him. Jesus chastises the Pharisees and says, and says to them, you diligently search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me and you refuse to come to me to have life. This is what Jesus says. 
So the scriptures are really about Jesus. And in the story of Samson, what we're seeing is a foreshadowing of Christ. I know it's a little bit tough to see, but the details are there in spades. And one of the reasons we know this is because Jesus himself shows up before Samson is conceived. He's, He's one of these miracle babies, if you would. Okay, so Judges chapter 13, verse 1. Here's what it says. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now there was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman. Now when you see angel of the Lord here, oftentimes this is safe to say this is a theophany and an appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Okay. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So, the purpose of Samson's life, notice it says, to begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This is his purpose. This is what he's commissioned for. This is why he's anointed. This is why he's even born. Okay? So then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. And I did not ask where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, Please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day, he's appeared to me. And so Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you get the I am thing going on here? That's not, that is not a coincidence. What's the name of, that God reveals for himself in the burning bush when he appears to Moses? What's his name? I am, okay? Are you the, are you the, uh, you know, are you the man who, uh, who spoke to this woman? He said, I am. And Manoah said, now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I have commanded her, let her observe. So Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to Yahweh. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask me my name, seeing that it is wonderful? 
So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward the heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. So here's what happened. They, they, it was a burnt offering. They, there was the flame, and the angel of the Lord literally steps into the flame and then whoosh, goes up into heaven, right? Now Manoah and his wife, they were watching. And then they fell on their faces to the ground, and the angel of the Lord appeared to no more to Manoah and his wife. And then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We will surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would have would he have not accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, and now announced to us all these things. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Now, I'm not going to tell the whole story of Samson, okay? But let's just put it this way. Samson is, well, a colorful character because he tells his parents to get him a wife from among the Philistines, which you're not supposed to do in Israel, but you learn from the text that that was by the will of the Lord. Okay, and it ultimately results in his, well, his wife being killed and uh, and then, you know, Samson wreaking vengeance on the Philistines. All of this, again, by God's will. Okay, and then later, okay, we're the, you know, the later in the story that we're looking at here is that Samson goes to the land of the Philistines to Gaza after he had you know been a judge in Israel for a while, and so this is where we pick up the story in chapter sixteen. I'll start at verse one. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. Hmm. Okay, did you notice a problem here? The Gazite, the, the Gazites were told Samson has come, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, and then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he rose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city, and the two posts, and pulled them apart, bar and all, and put them on his shoulder, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this... He loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one should subdue you. Okay, so he loves Delilah, right? But she, at this point, is willing to betray the man who loves her for pieces of silver. Does any of this starting to sink in? You should be saying, you know, this sounds weird. Well, right. What we're talking about here is a foreshadowing of Christ. Let me read to you one of the one, something that one of the church fathers preached from one of his sermons. This is uh, Caesareus of uh, Arles, A-R-L-E-S. Here's what he says. What was the meaning of Samson? If I say that he signified Christ, it seems to me that I speak the truth. However, the thought immediately occurs to anyone who reflects, was Christ overcome by the flattery of a woman? 
How was Christ understood to have gone into a prostitute? Well, then again, when did Christ have his head uncovered or his hair shaved or himself robed, uh, you know, robbed of courage, bound, blinded, and mocked? Watch, faithful soul, notice why it is Christ, not only what Christ did, but also what he suffered. What did he do? He worked as a strong man and suffered as a weak one. In the one person I understand both qualities. I see the strength of the Son of God and the weakness of the Son of Man. Moreover, when the Scriptures extol him, Christ is entire, both head and body, just as Christ is the head of the church, so the church is his body, and in order that we might not be alone, it is the whole Christ with the head. Now the church contains within itself both strong and weak members. It has some who are fed on bread alone and others who must must still be nourished with milk. There is further fact which must be admitted in association with the sacraments, the imparting of baptism or participation at the altar. The church has both just and unjust people. At present, the body of Christ is a threshing floor, as you know, but afterwards it will be a granary. While it is a threshing floor, it does not refuse to tolerate chaff, but when the time of storage comes, it will separate the wheat from the chaff. Thus, some things Samson did as the head and others as the body but all in the person of Christ. Inasmuch as Samson performed virtues and miracles, he prefigured Christ, the head of the church. And when he acted prudently, he was an image of those who lived justly in the church. But when he was overtaken and acted carelessly, he represented those who are sinners in the church. The prostitute whom Samson married is the church which committed fornication with idols before knowing one God, but which Christ afterwards united to himself. However, when she was enlightened and received faith from him, she even merited to learn the mysteries of salvation through him and he further revealed to her the mysteries of heavenly secrets so here's the idea samson in some very important ways prefigures and foreshadows christ now i see it most strongly in what immediately happens after this after delilah deceives him notice she betrayed him for pieces of silver that's that is a thematic uh, part here that cannot be overlooked that unmistakably is, should get your attention to going, man, Jesus su it suffered something similar here, but different. Enough to say, okay, I, I see it. Samson is foreshadowing Jesus, but how so? We continue with the story. So, verse 7, Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and, and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had that had not been dried, and, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps it when it's touched by the fire, so the secret of his strength was not known. So then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And then the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off of his arms like a thread. Now, this is verse 13 where Pastor Chris is having them start, but we're, we now are well into the story. So then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fashion it, uh, fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. 
So while he slept, Delilah took seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with a pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep, pulled away the pin and the loom and the web. And then she said to him, How can you say I love you? When your heart is not with me, you have mocked me these three times. You have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man." Now when Delilah saw that he had told her all of his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all of his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her, brought the money in their hands, and she made him sleep on her knees. And she called a man and and had him shave off the seven locks of his head, and she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze and shackles. And and he ground at the mill in the prison, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the Lord of the Philistines gathered to offer a sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson our enemy into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entered the, entered, entertained them. And made him, they made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there on the roof. There were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. So then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them on his right hand and on the one, and on his left on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. This is prefiguring Christ's cross. So here Samson is literally dying to save Israel from the Philistines. 3,000 of the Philistines are about to die. And his arms are stretched out, foreshadowing Christ's cross. This is what's going on here. Okay? So the, okay, so then he bowed with all of his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. And then his brothers and his families came down and took him and brought him and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol and the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel for 20 years. So he fulfilled his mission. He did exactly what he was supposed to do. Begin to set Israel free from the hand of the Philistines. And he did so in his death. Now, in his death, it's really clear. We're looking at Samson 
this shameful Messiah, if you would, shame, you know, and this is what Christ looks like to the world on the cross. He's crucified as a criminal, treated like a, you know, like the scum of the earth. He dies a criminal's death. So here's all the shame of our sin on Christ and his arms are stretched out. And by dying, he saves us. And this is, you have to work with a figure here. Philistines are, you know, in you know, you can you can somewhat allegorize them and make it metaphorical here. These are idolaters, the people who bound us, the people who God has sold us into sin, death, and the devil. That's what's really going on here. And Samson's story prefigures Christ, and he accomplished his mission. Began to set the people of Israel free from the hand of the Philistines, and he judged Israel for twenty years. Sinner and saint. And yet he foreshadows Christ and he fulfilled the mission that Christ brought him into the world for. Okay? That's what's going on in the story. So let's see if um, if Chris Harrell of uh, South Hills Church in Corona, if this is where he points us to, to Jesus Christ and how Samson foreshadows Christ. We continue. Weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head and wove them into the fabric and tightened it with the pin. Again, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He woke up from his sleep and he pulled up to the, uh, the pin and the loom out with the fabric. And then she said to him, how can you say that I love you when you won't confide in me? Mm-hmm. Gentlemen, can I ask you a Obvious question. This is now the third time, two times previous, that he goes into this position. I don't know if you're with me on this, but can anyone else see that Samson is crazy for still being involved with this woman? How does he not see what's going on? What is missing in Samson's life that he cannot see that there is an enemy to his soul working against him, trying to eliminate his life, trying to mess up the fulfillment of his life, trying to break off his connection with God, trying to destroy everything God created to give to us. How come Samson can't see it? What is it in Samson's life that he is missing? Why can he not tell something's going on? Because it's not because he doesn't know God, and it's not because he's not anointed to have a special gift from God. He's very connected to the power of God. He sees God's power move. He's a Nazarite, so he's, he's, he's still connected. But there's something else going on here that I believe God wants us to take a deeper look at. Let's read the next one, the next verse. This is the third time. Everybody say third time. You have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day after day after day. That's not in your Bible, but it's in my heart. (laughs) Until he was what? Sick to death of it. Now, husbands, do not react to what I'm about to say. Just look at me and just know. That me and you understand each other. But just know that the Bible speaks to everything you ever feel as a husband. That if you ever feel that the nagging and prodding makes you sick to death in your soul. And you just wish for earphones that had the ability to somehow cancel the noise of the nagging and prodding you have ever felt. Do not admit it. Do not smile. Don't even laugh at this joke. Just keep looking at me straight right here. Because she might be sitting next to you. And she's got stiletto elbows, man. And she will jam your ribs so hard. And you know this. The Bible speaks to all things, guys, all things. Now, this is the third time. Again, everybody say third time. 
How is it, again, that Samson does not see this? What is missing from Samson's life? That he is unable to see what's going on. He is alone. That's what. He has isolated himself from godly community. He has nobody. What? Where are you getting that? So the reason why Samson is in danger is because he's isolated himself from godly community? Where did you get that from? It's not in the text. That's not even what this text is about. Nobody in his life that could ask him honest questions. He has nobody in his life that he can look to, that can look back, that he's given passport and say, you know what? St- really? How do you know this? Which text says that, that he had isolated himself, that there was nobody in his life that he could talk to? There's not a single text that says that in the story of Samson. Not one. You're making that up. Stay involved in my life. I need you, man. You're older than me or you're younger than me or you're the same age as me. But you know what? I need someone who's going to be honest with me because I can't do this life by myself. I'll mess it up. I'm too selfish. I'm too greedy. I'm too lustful. I want too much for me. I, I just can't do it by myself. But Samson has isolated himself. He's gifted. He knows who God is. It's not a matter of if he knows God and it's not a matter of whether or not he's gifted. It's a matter of whether or not he has put people in his life and allowed for people to get around him that he is connected to and because he is alone samson has no one into his life and then so he's all isolated he's all by himself he just doesn't have godly community to help him to save him from the wiles of the wascally delilah he has surrounded himself with people like delilah people who will lie and cheat and not worry about it people who will do things that are not morally sound and don't and oh well, well and i'm not saying that you can't ever have any of those people in your life cuz how are we going to reach people who don't know the lord if you don't have some of those people in your life i'm saying that can't be the only type of people you roll with you better have people like that in your life because they need to see something different in you. But if you don't have people that actually want to try to follow a way that God has laid out in your life, then you will eventually isolate yourself from the very faith that you know is real. And then you'll find yourself six months, two years down the road, and you're like, what the heck happened to my life? How did I become this person? When did I become like this? When did I become blind to what's going on? Why can Samson not clearly see what every one of you got. The story of Samson is not about you or me or about us making sure that we have, whether we're in godly communities so that people can save us from Delilah's. That's not what this story is about at all. Guys in this room and every one of you girls in this room can see. You, you trying to tell me right now that all of a sudden, you know, let's say guys that you got a real big problem with chocolate eclairs. I'm somebody, that's a testimony right there. Like, amen, brother, don't, don't tell the truth now in church. And you tell this woman, you know, my problem with chocolate eclairs, man, is it makes me crazy. In fact, if I was able to have a lot of chocolate, every chocolate eclair I eat, it makes me want to give my, my money to the woman in my life so she could spend it however she wants to on clothing, on, on massages, on, on day spas, and on, on ordering whatever she wants to order. And she could spend all my money away. The only thing I need is chocolate eclairs. And if you woke up the next day and hostess had backed up a chuck to your backyard and was dropping chocolate eclairs inside, wouldn't you think there was something crazy with that woman in your life? You sure would. You'd be like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why all these chocolate eclairs in my backyard? You'd connect it, but Samson's not connecting it. Why? Because he's got nobody in his life. There's nobody to be like, hey, dude. I- really, what passage says that? There is no verse in any part of Judges that says the reason why Samson wasn't able to connect these dots is because 
he was disconnected from community. Not one passage says it. If anything, the way the story really plays out, it's as if he's just tempting fate. He's playing a game with Delilah. And we know this from his character. He likes to play these kind of games. You might want to take a long look at this thing. And so he has surrounded himself. If you're taking notes, maybe write this phrase down. You are who you surround yourself with. You are who you surround yourself with. You show me your friends, I will show you your future. You sh- this is not what this text ta- teaches at all. Show me your friends, I will show you your character. You show me your friends, I will show you your values. You show me who you're around and who you let speak into your life, and I will show you the person you are. And if you don't like some of the things that you are, then you need to take a look at the kind of people you're letting speak into your life. Because the only people who have passport in your life are people who don't care if you mess your life up. That is what Samson has. Samson has people that either they're not even in his life and the ones that are don't care if Samson messes his life up. He's made himself alone and he's departed himself away from people who want to tell him the truth. Some of us got acquaintances in this room, but you need real friends because you got acquaintances. You call friends. Acquaintances are the kind of people who won't tell you the truth about yourself because they don't want you to be mad at them. So who do they care more about you or them themselves? Because they don't want to deal with your anger. I don't care if you don't like me. I don't. You don't have to like me, but I promise you this. I will tell what I believe God's truth is every single week. My friends don't have to like me, but the real friends, the real friends I have, we love each other because we're so real. Man, I got friends we will tell it all to because we're in community together. We're in a small group. We connect and we go deep. And Samson has alienated himself from that. And as a result, he's in dangerous, dangerous territory because he's become who he surrounded himself with. Let's keep reading and see what he tells her now. So, verse 17, he told her everything. Everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said. And because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. Samson's got no one in his life to tell him that he should not be dating a girl like Delilah. Let's keep reading and you'll see what I mean. Verse 18. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines and said, come back just one more time because this time he's really told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands and after putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him and his strength left him. It's interesting that Samson gives out on his connection with God and he does it. By giving out on the obedience to being what God had called him to be. He said, I don't want to be obedient. God said, never do this, but I don't care because I want to be connected to this woman. I want to be connected to this job. I want to make this money. I want to have this possession. I want to be right all the time. I want to have this, be this, attain this, achieve this. And because I want that more than I want to be obedient to God, I break off the very connection and the very anointing that God has put on my life. And as a result... Now, the very power that was protecting me, the very community that was there for me to help me become who God wants me to be so God could bless my life. The very community. Here we go again with the community talk. Where's the community mentioned in here again? I've now cut off from my life. And that is where we find Samson. And this is where the sadness of the story begins. Because what's sad to me is this, in a very moment where Samson thinks he is most connecting emotionally with this woman, he is actually connecting with this woman 
And the very connection he's making here outside of the bounds of what God said to do is the very one that's breaking the connection with his God. And that's what happens in life. We make the choice to say, I'd rather connect to my own thing. But often these choices are the exact things that God is saying, that's breaking connection with me. And connection with me is not because I'm mad at you. And I say this every week and I'll say it till I'm blue in the face. This is never, ever about God not loving you. This is never about God not loving you. It's never about God not wanting to be in your life. Let me read to you uh, uh, Caesareus of uh, Arles, his um, punchline regarding Samson and how it prefigures Christ's crucifixion. Therefore, Samson's enemies brought him to play the buffoon before them. Notice here an image of the cross. Samson extended his hands, spread out the two columns as the two beams of the cross. Moreover, by his death, he overcame his adversaries because his sufferings became the death of his persecutors. For this reason, Scripture concludes the fall, uh, as follows. Those he killed at his death were more than those he killed during his lifetime. This mystery was clearly fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ, for at his death he completed our redemption, which he had by no means publicly announced during his life, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Yeah, see, there's so much more going on to the Samson story. It points us to Jesus. But who is uh, Pastor Chris pointing us to? The community, not to Jesus. This is troubling on so many different levels. God telling you to do things and you needing to submit to God's ways is not because God is some insecure God that needs a bunch of people to follow all his rules. It's because he created the world. He made life and he's the one who knows how it ought to go. And he hates what happens to us when we go away from his plan because his plan is to fulfill, to bless and to love us. And so when we get off of that path and off of that plan, we become subject to all of the devices of sin and all of the messed up stuff of this world. And we're jacked up. And he's like, that is what I hate. I hate that you have to be so jacked up because of all the stuff that you chose to do. It's not that I hate you. No, 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 no. See, we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. This is what scripture says. You got that backwards. You know, you have Jesus basically talking, you know, you've made all these decisions and you know, that you've been jacked up. No, 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 no. The reason why we make those bad decisions is because we are, excuse me, theologically, doctrinally, spiritually jacked up we're born dead in trespasses and sins i hate what that stuff does to you that is what my heart aches so bad for you because i'm like oh and i already paid for it too i gave you jesus you don't even have to suffer you do have to submit but you don't have to suffer and so all of a sudden samson is now in this position where the strength has left him Because he wanted to rely on his own wisdom, his own self, and he was isolated and he had no friends in his life who would be real with him. He had no one, no one who would say, hey, dude, this... He didn't have the community to save him. Oh, that poor Samson. Don't be like Samson. Apparently, Samson is a cautionary tale to tell us about the dangers of individualism and how we need to be saved by the community. This is, I don't know, man. I, I think I love you, bro, right? We, I mean, you know I love you. I'm your boy, man. We're friends. We're, we, you know what? We've known each other a long time now. Hey, we, we've been friends a long time. We've gone through things together. But I, I, I got to tell you, this concerns me. And I see you heading in this road and down this path. And, man, I'm not so sure if that's something that you shouldn't really think long and hard about. And I know God's word is saying this ain't where we want to be. 
You don't have those kinds of people. You'll be in the same position we see Samson in. Let's see what happens. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. Okay, here it is. This is the big moment. The whole message right here. This is it. He awoke from his sleep and he thought, I will go out as before and I will shake myself free. But read this now with me out loud. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. The spirit of God had departed from Samson and he didn't even know it because he had nobody in his life to say, these choices you're making are going to rob you of the very life. that." If only he had a community. Oh, that poor Samson. That God wants to give you. You're choosing a connection with this woman or with this man or with this job or with this idea and this, uh, this, this material possession or with this thing you think. You're choosing connection with that. And the very connection you're pursuing here is actually cutting off your connection with God who has anointed you and gifted you to be able to do something special on this earth. And so Samson is in this position where he's thinking, I'm fine. I've been successful. I got here, didn't I? I built this company. I built this thing, all right? It was in rubbles years ago, and I've built... Narcissistic eisegesis. I'm good. I'm all right by myself. I'm the one, man. I've been successful. I'm good. What do I need? Somebody in my ear trying to tell me I, I should be telling them. I don't need anybody telling me this kind of stuff. And it's funny that the very, the very thing that God wants to protect us from is our own foolishness. God wants to protect us from our own foolishness. But that's why we see Samson doing life alone. Because he's foolish enough to believe that he's not going to mess up his life. That poor Samson, he was doing life alone. By doing stuff just for himself. He doesn't even know how bad he's messed it up. So, If only he had a small group. So let's see that what happens. Verse 21. Then the Philistines seized him. They gouged out his eyes. They took him down to Gaza. They binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding grain in the prison. The hero of our story, the anointed one of God, the one who had this unbelievable connection with God has gone from being a hero to the very thing that he wanted. He wanted zero accountability. He wanted zero real friends in his life. He wanted zero... Really, where does it say he wanted zero accountability or zero real friends in his life or anything like that? I don't recall any of those passages. Zero people to tell him he shouldn't do something. He wanted zero uh, responsibility, zero discipline. The Bible only two times records that Samson prayed. Only two times. Oh, he didn't even pray? Gasp. This is terrible. By the way, the story of Samson is not a cautionary tale about the importance of community. He wanted zero prayer life. He wanted zero anyone challenging him about his faith. Don't mess with me, okay? Don't, don't bother me, preacher. Okay, I got enough on my back. I don't need someone. He wanted zero anyone trying to lovingly, passionately, straightforwardly say, this is what's real. Avoid it to your own despair. And which passages say that? Oh, yeah, none of them. He wanted zero of that. So what did our hero get? He went from being a hero to being a zero. He surrounded himself with people and with nobody. The people he had didn't care about him, about the real him, the inside character of who he would become. And the, and the ones that he had on the outside, he pushed so far away, nobody could tell him the truth anymore. This is a breaking point. Really, where did you get these little um, tidbits again? None of those things are actually said in the story of Samson. Point in his life. And I want to tell you, there is a breaking point. 
where your choices will eventually bring you to the place where you have to recognize you cannot do it by yourself. Healthy community will protect you from that. If you're taking notes, maybe you could write this phrase down. Samson was blind before he ever lost his eyes. Samson was blind before he ever lost his eyes. Because he didn't see community. Do you think that Chris Harrell is a communitarian? I bet you he is. He stopped seeing what God had asked him to be. He stopped doing the things God had called him to do. And he had all his reasons. He had good reasons. Yeah, this one old Christian, this one old pastor, this one old church, this one old story, that one person. Did you hear how that preacher failed? He had a moral fairy on his wife. You hear about that one woman? She always gossips. She's the only Christian I knew. She gossiped more than anyone else I knew. So we all have our reasons why we want to disengage from God. But you know what I've yet to find? Anyone who has a good reason against Jesus. Oh, I got reasons against Christians. I got more reasons against Christians than probably a lot of you in this room. But I can't find nothing on Jesus. Nothing. I've yet. I tried. I did. I used to be an atheist pastor. Try that on for size. I've known Jesus, about Jesus, for 17 years of my life. I've been a Christian for 17 years. I've been a pastor for about 12 And I met Jesus about six years ago. Because when you meet Jesus, that'll change what you believe about Christianity. When you really. Why don't you tell me about Jesus? Share with me a few things about him. Maybe something he's done for me. How Samson points us to the cross. That'd be a great trick, wouldn't it? Really get away from all the reasons why you can't be a Christian. And you just say, you know what? Enough of all what the people did to God. I'm tired of what the people made Christianity. I'm here to talk to you, Jesus, and I want to deal with you. And if that means I gotta, I've got to give up some of my ideas, I'm going to do that. Samson was unwilling to allow people to get close enough to him. Who, really, again, which verses say that? Oh, yeah, none. Who could talk to him those kinds of talks. But see, I got people in my life like that. I got a pastor. I got a small group of people that get around me. We meet periodically. Once a week, I get together with a group of guys. And my wife gets together with their wives. And we sit around and we talk shop. We talk about what we're struggling with. And I mean, we talk about what we're struggling with. And if you think you're going to get married and stop dealing with lust. And you think you're going to become a pastor and stop dealing with lust. Somebody lied to you and you done bought it. This pastor still is a human. I got to live in this temple. But you know what I don't? I don't submit to it. I submit to Jesus and to the community around me and say, I don't want to submit to Jesus and the community. Huh. I have to submit to the community. Strange verb. Want a deal. And I just ain't talking about lust of sex. I'm talking about the lust of everything this life offers. Money, materialism, power, all of that. It's all a part of the human element. And Samson had it like you have it, like I have it, except Samson had nobody around him to help him journey through it. Again, no texts say this. He's just inserting it in there. And he cut himself off from godly local community. And as a result of that, he became what he wanted. Which Yeah, nothing, no passage says that. Which was... Nothing. Your success, and some of you are sitting there thinking, I've been successful, Pastor Chris. I'm good. I, 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 I'm fine. Well, I, I want to make this statement to you then. Success is the most dangerous thing that can happen to anyone that is not in godly community. Six- yeah, you don't want to be successful outside of community. That would be bad because you have to submit to the community. Success is the most dangerous thing that can happen to anyone that is not in godly community. Now, we're going to talk for the next couple of weeks about what real godly community is, because even some of you, quote, deep Christians in the room, 
You think that you have godly community, but I would like to talk for the next few weeks about what the Bible says. Not what I say, not what you say, but what the Bible says about godly community. Because I know that God is calling our church to something so great. We cannot mess up what God wants us to be as a community of people. As a community. Yeah, boy, lots of community talk here. We can't. We can't miss it. We can't. It's too great. It's too, what we are supposed to do in this city and in this nation is too great. In the nation? For you to miss what God is calling us to here at this campus when it comes to godly community. Again, community, community, community. Notice the theme here. By the way, community is never mentioned there in the story of Samson. And you know what, guys? Sometimes it's good to be able to call another man who understands his wife just as little as you do. You know, and, and, and ladies, it's good to be able to call another woman who you could just say this. You know what? He's doing it again. And you ain't even got to say what it is. And she already understands. You're like, he's doing it again. Mine is too. And it's like, how do girls know what you mean? It's just they do. You know why, guys? Because we do it again. Or to be able to call someone wiser, smarter, older, longer on the road of following Christ than you. If you're under 30, I'm sure that, you know, there's all kinds of reasons for us. Maybe you would think, well, I, I don't want to be in a group, you know. We've done small groups. I don't care what they're called. We're probably going to change the name just for fun because we like changing things around. You know why we like changing things at South Hills? I'm going to tell you why. Because then it ruffles the feathers of the people who want to control things, and then they can't control things, and then you get to see who really just wants the mission to be accomplished regardless of what happens. That's why we like changing things because anything that grows has to change. Anything, anything that grows has to change. And I wish Jesus could be the campus pastor of this church, but he can't. I am, and I don't got it all figured out. So we got to try some stuff. So anything that grows has to change. Hmm, what Bible verse says that? But that's not going to work. Oh, yeah, not one. <laughs> Welcome to earth. I hope that's not a newsflash. But what I can tell you is this. I know that some of us are like, you know what, Be, call it whatever. Every, there's churches that call it new life groups, small groups, growth groups, you know, heaven group. Not heaven groups we would never do, but <laughs> we want you to grow your relationship with Christ. And I believe that in a group of people, a small group of people is where the best, that is the best place for you to really develop godly community. Now, I don't, we're, we're going to do it for the next two weeks. I really want you to know what godly community is, and that's next week and the week after that. We're not going to do that this week, but I, I just for this week, we want you to understand it is so important. This is the most important message that we could start off this new chapter with. And, 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 and maybe you're, 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 you know, you're an introvert, and you're like, yeah, but I'm an introvert, so you know, I don't know. I don't want to be around a lot of people and have to talk. Well, if you're an introvert, actually, groups are great for you because you get to go super deep, very authentic, and you get to have real relationship with people. We take this big room, and we make our big church really, really small. So it doesn't matter if our church here at this campus becomes 3,000 people. If we keep putting people into groups together, we could be fine and take care of each other's needs. And one of the things that, that I know, and maybe if you're, if you're, if you're uh, under 30, I'm going to say this. Over the next 25 years, if you become a great Christian and a follower of God and you get what you need, please don't become a person that grows up and wants to alienate himself from the younger generation and you don't want to take time to teach the under 30 people what they need to know about God. Please don't for the next 25 years, get into your groups, surround yourself with people that love God, get apart, build this church and make our church what it wants to be and then become a 55-year-old person that is annoyed at 30-year-old people. 
who don't know things. If you're 30 and under, you're going to get married. You're going to have kids. Maybe you got young kids. Maybe young married. Please, please, I beseech you. 30. What does this have to do with the story of Samson? and under do not grow in the next 15 to 20 years and start to think this church is about you it's not it's about who you will come to serve and the older you get it is about you remembering that once upon a time you didn't have it figured out and you needed somebody that would help you not alienate you push oh yeah but wait a second Uh, that church isn't for christians remember so if you're a christian you shouldn't be there push you down and get annoyed that there's too many young people in the room So we need you 30-year-olds as you grow and grow families and as our church become a church for the unchurched and for those who have questions and for those who are young. A church for the unchurched. Yeah, that's like trying to do uh, capitalism for communists. It doesn't make any sense. It's an oxymoron. It doesn't actually work. Young and don't know the answers. We need you. Those of you that are young are going to start this thing off. They're going to be the young families. You will one day, you will one day be the people that they're looking to. And we will need your heart to say, we are for this next generation. Not in- Never did get to Jesus, did he? At least not yet. We're almost done. Not in spite of them because they annoy us. We are for them. God's got oxygen in my lungs so I could affect the next generation before I leave. Yeah, notice he's talked way more about himself than he has about Jesus. Leave this earth. Now, if you're over 30, need I say more? Because I can Oh, please, beat me up. That's the godly idea of community. The older helps the younger. The younger inspires the older. We do it together. You don't get annoyed because they're older and they drive slow. Because guess what? The older are the ones who paid their tithes on time and kept this lights on and paid the salaries of the people you think are cool. So you little under 30 folk that don't ever give on time and you don't tithe, the folks over 30 are the ones that are paying for this thing to happen. <laughs> yeah, this is his first sermon, folks. Yeah, nice verbal tongue lashing. Oh, I think the seeker-driven folks are trying to figure out how to keep the older set there because they're the tithers. Uh-huh. He came right out of his mouth. That should tell you something. Happens to show him some dang respect. Yeah, your cute little kids in the nursery. Who's watching those kids? Somebody on a volunteer team underneath a pastor who only gets paid because we got faithful folk that understand it's not about them. It's about serving the purposes of God. And they give a tenth of their offering because none of this is free. It all costs money, but they know they'd rather give it so the person who doesn't have the idea of giving their money yet can still receive it for free. So nobody has to go without hearing who Jesus is. And we got seasoned saints at South Hill Church that know. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's been to the, and a graduate of the Perry school of pastoral tact and, and shepherd care no that's what it's about so if you're under 30 and i ever catch you dishonoring disrespecting the ones over 30 you will have to deal with me and 10 of my friends am i all right uh when were you gonna get to jesus again oh you probably won't huh too busy with other stuff You know, there's about three of you that'll never come back, but you know what? For the couple hundred that will, it's worth it. It, I'm sorry, it is. If you're not a Christian and you're wondering, well, what about me, Pastor? I, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, I have a belief system. I'm a believer. I just don't believe in Jesus yet, and I'm not sure if I ever will. Or I, I got questions and. 
I'm part of that group of, I got doubts. I'm not sure if God made it. I'm not sure why I'm here. I know Jesus was real. I know he's in the history books. I know he's in every religion. I get that. I just, I just haven't dialed it all in yet. What about me, pastor? To you, I want to say thank you for being here and you're in the right place. This church is here for you. Everyone is welcome at South Hills Church, mostly except for Christians. Yeah, see, now he just said that this isn't a church for Christians. So him saying that this is a place for everybody—that's not true. It's it's a place for anybody who isn't already a Christian. They do church for the unchurched. So if you're churched, you gotta go. People who have questions about Jesus. What kind of a church would we be if cue sappy music? The only people who we ever invited to come here were people who already had it figured out. And were- By the way, the sappy music is to create the false impression that all of a sudden God, the Holy Spirit, has come fluttering into the room. And he's now making his way through the, through the uh, well, the stadium seats with the uh, cup holders so that people have their lattes on. And he's there to do business with you now. And so the, that music creates the impression that the Holy Spirit has now arrived. And we're already convinced it was true. That's not a church, that's a club. We might as well just be a Christian club and charge membership and just say, hey, that's what it is. But we're not. We ask you to be owners, not members. This isn't a club. It's not for insiders, it's for outsiders. Well, if it's, if it's a church for outsiders, not insiders, if you're an insider, you gotta go, because it's not for you. He just said it. And the longer you've been here, the more you're supposed to be about the people aren't here yet. That's the nature of a church. No, it's not. The job of the pastor, by the way, go read my article at Letter of Mark. Okay, Pastors exist for a particular group, and it's not unbelievers, it's believers. What he's saying is absolutely not only not taught in Scripture, as a pastor, he has no business saying any of this stuff because the pastoral office exists for the sheep. It exists for insiders, not outsiders. And so today, if you're an unbeliever in Christ, but you're a believer in something and you're trying to figure that out, our groups are perfect for you. You know why? You won't be judged. You don't have to have the answers. And, and you're going to get around people. Maybe you would say, yeah, but I don't, I mean, we're going to talk about Jesus and God. Yeah, you're right. We are. But you know what? Here's what I can tell you. You have an innate desire and a need to be loved, made safe, and to be encouraged. Well, actually, if they're an unbeliever, they've got far more needs than that. They need to repent and be forgiven. Otherwise, they're going to burn in hell. You got anything for that problem? And I can promise you, the people of South Hills Church, if you get to know the group with the people in this room, the people in this room, this church knows what it was like to not believe once upon a time in Jesus. And they're going to take time with you. They're going to walk with you. They're going to ask questions. They're going to let you ask yours. They're going to take time. They're not going to tell you all the answers. They're going to, they're going to just validate you where you're at. So they're going to validate you where you're at. Where in the Bible does it say that we Christians are supposed to validate non-believers where they're at? I'm not familiar with any passages that say that. So that you could come to get it. Because we know this. Anybody who gets convinced outside of their will is still not convinced. We ain't going to try to twist your arm to convince you. We think Jesus can do that. We really do. And so you're in the right church. If you've got questions about God, thank you for being here. You're the right place. We don't care who you think God is. If you think he's Jesus, Muhammad, Yahweh, it doesn't matter. You're welcome at South Hills Church because we're a church for people who still got questions, who still don't got it figured out, are not convinced yet. This is not a church for church people. Well, then it's not really a church then, is it? Because if you're not a believer in Christ, you're not actually part of the church. So it's not really a church then, right? Oh, we want church people. 
But we want the real kind of church people who know that that's why God put them in this church is to make sure that people could know people who would take time to let them know who their Jesus is. People who will sacrifice. Well, the pastor's clearly not going to do it because you haven't told him to hoke him about Jesus. Sacrifice and say, my job is to give so the next generation can hear. My job is to give for the people who will never give so they get a chance to hear it. I'm going to take care of paying for this stuff because that's my role as a Christian. And that's how deep I really am. For the next couple of weeks, we want to talk about what real community is. But for this week, what do you do? What can we do now? Well, on your, on your seat is a, is, a, is a sheet of paper about our groups. And, and what I'd like you to do is I'd like every one of you who think you're interested in one of two things. One, you're the interested in, I just want to know about this. I want to, I, I, I want to, I want to get into a community. I want to know what it's like. And I've never been in something like this. We want to invite you to fill this out. And then we're going to be in contact with you. And we want to be able to get yeah, quick sign up for a community group. So you don't end up like, well, Samson, you know, with his eyes gouged out and stuff to connect you with some other people so that you can get into community. Now, if you're already in a, a, in, in a group here at South Hills Church, please fill it out also. And here's why. We're new, okay? I'm the new campus pastor. We got a new small groups pastor. Okay, we don't know everything that everyone is doing. And the only way we can find that out is if you'll help us. So this will allow us to update our database, allow us to update who's doing what, and we could actually start to lead this church if we know who is this church. But we don't know that because we're new. And so if you could fill that out for us, if you are a current small group and you meet and, and you subscribe to South Hills Church and you love our mission and you love where we're headed, then please fill that out. And then we have a booth um, um, in the back. Pastor Dennis and his team is back there. Drop it off at that booth. Say hi. And please welcome him. I mean, he's been working ragged for the next last three months trying to help our church dial into what we're ready to do now. And so please take care of him and Judy and love on them as you walk by that booth in the back. We're going to talk about this for the next couple of weeks. And so if you're still kind of like, you know, I, I want to do it, but I have more questions. I want to know what, I want to know what real community means before I sign up for one. Then you know what? We're going to be doing it for the next two weeks. Well, based upon your mangling of the story of Samson, I seriously doubt you're going to tell them what the truth is regarding what the Bible teaches regarding real biblical community. I don't think you know what it is. Because we want to make it clear, this is where God's taken us. And we cannot be the church God's called us to be if we do not understand his idea of godly community. There are people in this city who need what I just talked about. Godly community? Last week I went and visited a woman and her family. And I don't know if you're in here, but uh, now we're going to hear another story about you. When were you going to tell them about Jesus again? But, um, her mother is 90 years old, had known Jesus most of her life and she was getting ready to pass away. And I had the privilege has been my privilege a couple times this last month to visit with a family losing a loved one. But you know what I understand? I understand that I'm just one person and there are more needs in this city than just I, Pastor Dennis, Pastor Chris, Pastor Jesse, Pastor Tim, our, our remnant pastor. We just can't take care of all these needs. And what we need is some groups that will have a group of people that will meet consistently and call themselves the backbone of South Hills Church and say, we are in community and the people in our community that go through it, we're going to visit them in hospitals. We're going to go take care. You know, it just makes me wonder if the reason why they had the big switch uh, and Chris Songson, you know, is no longer the head teaching pastor. makes me wonder if they plateaued or started to shrink. Just, you know, wondering. We're, we're going to get to know their families. We're going to pray for them when they're down and out. We're going to encourage them. We're going to go to their graduations. We're going to celebrate the recitals. We're going to do real life together in community. That's the South Hills way. And if we all did it, can you imagine what we could do in this city? Can you imagine how many hospital rooms will get a visit from South Hills Church? Do you know how many people who have a community will end up in hell? 
I mean, seriously, when are you going to tell them about Jesus and what he did for them? When it's not just five of us trying to do the visits, but it's a thousand of us trying to do the visits. Can you imagine how many baseball games will have people cheering? Can you imagine what people will find out about our God when they hear of a church whose people actually are doing life with each other and are showing up in the city and saying, yeah, why would you not? We don't know any other way. This is just what we do at South Hills. What will they want to know about our Jesus? How many lives? How many marriages? Yeah, well, don't go to church to find out anything about Jesus. You apparently are not interested in telling anybody there about Jesus during the sermon time. Which is the time when most people expect to hear something about Jesus. Marriages will be changed. How many future kids will have a mom and a dad start coming to church and realize who Jesus is? And those kids will grow up different. And it could be the next Billy Graham waiting for you to get into a community and then use your community not just to go deep with each other, but to reach out to this city. Who knows? Yeah, whatever you do, don't use your community to go deep with each other. That's frowned on. No, you don't want to do that. That might create the impression that church is for Christians. <laughs> it ain't. knows what's out there? Can you imagine what would happen, though, if we all really dialed into God's idea of community? We will change this city, and then God will take what we're doing here, put it into the hands of Pastor Chris Songson, and he will spread it around this nation. That I'm here to commit my life to. Will you pray with me this morning? Nope. Yeah, sorry, you don't get to pray. You showed me that you're not capable of handling God's word correctly or telling anybody about Jesus. So I'm pretty much convinced that I'm we don't pray to the same God. At least you haven't shown me any reason to believe that we actually do, so I'm not going to let you pray. <sighs> well, there you go. Brand new seeker-driven pastor. First time in the saddle and wow what a brow beating that was and whoa what a twist apparently who i mean who knew that the story of samson was a cautionary tale about living outside of community i just had no clue about that so what'd you think i'd love to get your feedback and if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on facebook Facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>